0: Thank you.
1: Everybody, and good morning to the 3CR gardening program this morning. Hopefully, we've got you all awake and ready to start joining in. Uh, I'm Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants at Mount Macedon, and for those who haven't been awake for, for the program before when I've been on also now of the YouTube channel The Haughty Culturalists so don't forget to go into that subscribe uh, press the alert button so that it tells you that the next one's coming up we post every Friday this last week's one was on ornamental oxalis so that should get people going a wee bit um, so hmm. um, yes yeah, so the YouTube channel is going along really well now, in the studio with me this morning so far, we've got somebody missing, so let's hope they do show up. Uh, we have Chris Williams, who's one of the lecturers at Burnley. Good morning, Chris. Good
2: Steve, and how are you?
1: I'm very good indeed. And How's things in your part of the world?
2: Uh, busy. Busy, yeah. 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 And I've got... Um, oh, here's someone coming in. Ah, uh, yes. Good, yeah. good,
1: good, good. All right. Well, let's let him get organised and get settled. Um, so... Um, Burnley, how's Burnley going? I guess that's a, a question to
2: ask. Yeah, well, like everyone, we've just come out of lockdown, yeah. um, so that means students can come back, um, because for those who don't know, it's a campus of the University of Melbourne, and it has these beautiful historic gardens, and then my favourite place, which is the Field Station, which yeah. is close to the public, and that's where I have a, a, a subject in the Master of Urban Horticulture called Food Production for Urban Landscapes and students grow their own veggies. Oh, fantastic. So they're all itching to get back there and pick their... Of course they are, the their crops and things. <laughs> well, I did actually last week um, through the Moving Feast project um, actually let, let Cultivating Community come in and pick a lot of the students' broccoli. <gasps> but I put that on social media and they forgave me. Oh, did I, they? Yeah.
1: Oh, yes. Yes, how dare you pick my broccoli, yeah, they said. indeed. Yes, I can well imagine. Mm. All right, now our other guest has arrived. And I think he's caught his breath. Yes. Good morning, Tim Stanson from Apologies. Uh, uh, from Heronswood, how are you? I'm very well. I'm right. very well. I'm, and how's the Diggers Club going?
3: Ah, uh, it's been an interesting couple of weeks, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's um, one way or the other. Yeah, well, unlike, on the whole, Diggers is going well, but we've now got some pretty significant disruptions at Sid Earth and at Cloud Hill. Yeah. With all the. Massive damage that we've had over the last couple of days. Yeah, so how
1: did the Cloud Hill come up uh, damage-wise? That's a question we should all be... Yeah, well,
3: latest report, um, well, we haven't been in there much. I think Jeremy got in the other, the other day, no. and I haven't had a direct conversation with him. Um, but the reports that I heard were that there was no major uh, no major trees or major structures. Uh, and were what about
1: reported. St Earth? How did it come out? Because over yeah. our side of town, there was a lot of damage. No? Yeah, yeah.
3: Um, Again, we'll say both sites no power yeah. uh, and no access at the moment, so they're both completely closed. Uh, St. Earth's got a few trees down mm. and, uh, and quite a lot of debris around the place.
1: Yeah, well that was almost inevitable. Yeah,
3: so it? but I don't think, but it's the photos I've seen, there's no major structures again. Ah. So we've got off fairly lightly. We're going to oh, have to get an good. arborist in to do a bit of clearing up. Yeah. Um, but fingers crossed. I mean, fingers crossed. We haven't seen any significant damage. Oh,
1: that's good. Yes, well, I have to say uh, I've come through it personally reasonably well. I had a big black wattle on my back boundary that fell straight through the neighbours. Wow. Uh, so the only damage it's really done in my garden is knocked down the back fence. Uh, and I had an carpa that decided to collapse in the front garden, virtually right on the street. <coughs> but I haven't been in to clean that one up yet, but it looks like most of it's fallen right down the middle of a path. Oh, that sounds like so, mm-hmm. so I don't think it's done huge amounts of damage, but my garden's going to be open uh, on the 24th and 25th of July for the... Um, for the uh, uh, Open Gardens Victoria Okay. and uh, so I'll have to get it all tidied up before then Plenty of work to do for uh, you Stephen And I did have one small crab apple fall over in the nursery and crush a few pots and what mm. have you, so there's a little bit of unsaleable stock sitting in my nursery at the moment uh, that I'll have to manage Well, it's, to it's lucky. It sounds like we've
3: been relatively mm. lucky. Like there's oh, a lot of gardens out
1: there that are destroyed, I think. gardens up on Mount Masset and mm. some of our big old, old historic ones that have lost seriously important mm. and major trees, uh, and there's still side roads up at Mount Masset and you can't go up. They haven't cleared mm. them yet. Uh, there's still plenty of people with their power out. Yeah. Uh, which is well, a bit frightening I've heard some stories that it's going to be a couple of weeks at Yeah, least it could power easily power. be, I know a couple of people who live up in Devonshire Lane, one of the very little lanes up in Mount Massad, and they've actually just evacuated out and they're living with somebody else for the time being, because mm. they've got no water they've got no power, nothing up there mm. and they've lost a couple of seriously important trees in their garden. so and I haven't been into many of the others yet, but I've been asking about. And um, nearly every garden's had some damage. Yeah. So it's really horrifying. I know Cameron Lodge lost a 100-year-old uh, Indian cedar, mm-hmm. uh, came crashing down. And, uh, yes, so, yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll find out over the next week got mm. to because a lot of people haven't been able to get back yeah. or, or they haven't had a full assessment of the damage yet. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's really worrying. But, anyhow, I guess the, at the end of the day, we can't do anything about it other than clean up afterwards. And I like to take a positive. Oh, yes. There's yeah. going to be all these new yeah. niches to Well, play exactly. It out There's there. gaps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I always say a gap is an opportunity. Yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, it's awful when you lose a really important old tree. Um, but trees will eventually die. We have to be aware of that, even if there's not a storm to knock them over. So, you know, what can we yeah.
2: say? And you can get some uh, herbaceous perennials into that full light now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, yes. Mean, I mean, I know James Hitchmore very jokingly, provocatively, calls the shade from trees, he calls it the gloom zone. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, well, it, it is an interesting and difficult mm. sort of area of a garden to manage. And, of course, yeah. gardens... Just like trees, senesce eventually, and they get to a point yep. where they're no longer functioning as a full-on garden anymore. They've become something of a well. Or they're not arboretum. what they were. Well, they're certainly not what they yeah. were. I mean, Alton, one of the big gardens on Mount Macedon, uh, I've read uh, information where back in the 1870s when it was first set up, the original owner, who planted lots of big trees, but they were little trees back then, mm. was planting 30,000 seedlings a year. Mm. There's no way you could cram a sun-loving seedling into Alton anywhere now, well, except probably, maybe in the veggie Probably because they did
3: plant that many seedlings back then. They <laughs> yeah. all grew. And they yeah, grew but I shame. was talking
1: about flowers. Yeah, oh, I see. Yeah, right. you know, they put in bedding plants, mm. masses of them. Um, you know, they had borders of dahlias and all sorts mm. of plants that you just couldn't possibly grow in most of those gardens well, anymore. Well, it's, it's, you look at old photographs of
3: the gardeners at Earth, which mm. was originally a gold mining town, Blackwood was, you know, clear. The yeah, the, well, exactly. the Wombat Forest was raised to the ground. And the the photos of the cottage sitting there just after gold mining era, it's there's so much Room to garden, like <laughs> and I'm sure that. When, and the forest has grown back subsequently, but all the all the planting that's been done subsequent to that has closed the canopy. Yeah, and the garden has changed, and that's there's some romance in that too. There are parts of that garden that work really well because of that, but then you also lose the opportunity for sunlight and oh, yeah. and perennials. And, yes, and, yes, yeah. uh, and other sort all of all those sh- splashy, showy things yeah. that we all love. Not yeah. understory things.
1: Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you know if you're going to plant under shade, then it does cut down the availability of plant species you can use. Absolutely, and. Generally speaking, things that grow well in heavy shade are not things that are highly floriferous. They're Mm. they're mainly foliage and texture and things. I mean, Mm. clive is probably one of the few things that have splashy flowers on them that grow in heavy shade. Yeah, but you think of most shade things, they've got a broad leaf, Mm. deep green foliage, or they've got foliage colour and
3: texture, which gives them, I guess that's their... That's their evolutionary capacity to, yeah. to, to,
1: to glean some sunlight. Well, exactly. Mm. So, yeah, so it's, it's a bit worrying and it's a bit horrifying when some of these things happen. But it's surprising what happens after a f- period of time. I mean, I lived through the Ash Wednesday bushfires at Mount Macedon, uh, which was an absolutely hideous and horrible time. Um, but, you know, over a period of time, the gardens re-evolve and, and take on, in some cases, a new persona. Um, It gives people the opportunity perhaps to plant things that are more interesting or different or whatever than was there before. Um, So it's opportunities, I suppose. The arborists are loving it, right? (laughs) The arborists (laughs) actually are probably going frantic trying to work out who they go to first. Priority list. Yeah, yeah. and um, hoping that they're being kind to all of their regular customers to start with. But there's so many emergency things going on out there that, you know, it's... I don't know how they're going to cope with it. They're going to be kept terribly, terribly busy for months yeah. on end, I should think. I think it's, it's you know, electricians and plumbers before arborists, perhaps. Or
3: maybe the arborists come in as the, you know, the quick access, mm-hmm. and then it's essential services before they come back for a proper prune. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, I
1: think it'll have to be like that. Mm-hmm. I know one of our neighbours around the corner from our place, we went and took the dogs for a walk couple of nights ago uh, i think it was the night after the big storm um, and right on dusk they had a huge cherry picker in there taking the top out of a tree that was leaning into another tree that was leaning directly towards the middle of their house hmm. you know so that had to come down it was it was you know just leaning up in another tree and uh, they were working after dark yeah to get it down but it's the effect of saturated soil and wind right? oh yeah. Yeah yeah. yeah 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 well we had certainly Buckets of rain. I mean, yeah. that on top of the wind was just was just hideous. Well,
3: I mean, the, the damage I've seen around our place and other photos I've seen, it's a combination of mm. leaf... No, sorry, limb drop. Sorry, yeah. You know, the big limbs okay. have, but, a, but like you say, because of soil moisture, there's a lot of trees that have you know, are over. You, can, yeah. you know, their, their root system's broken and the root plate is up. They've just tipped over. Yeah. And that's got to be soil moisture um, and exposure. And, and also, potentially, I mean, the wind came in this instance really strongly directly from the south. Mm. Um, and quite often it's a southwester rather. I
1: don't know if it's yeah, a different there angle. Was a different angle in a wind, angle in think wind, was of think that was one of the of a things of a lot of a out that of trees perfectly that had stood perfectly firmly mm. for decades, because uh, it came from the opposite direction than they were used to. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's funny, it was the the li- night I think think I can remember remember, I never I not not to to sleep at that that night oh. because the wind was was howling yeah. around the the uh, the rain was pelting down, uh, I thought I could hear crashes and bangs, and I probably did, considering the damage that happened overnight. Um, I mean, the neighbour behind me where my big black wattle went through, his back garden looks like Armageddon. He's, He's lost three huge big gum trees, yeah. uh, plus my wattle going down into his side as well. And his little lemon tree standing there in between the forks of all these trees came crashing down,
4: looking perfectly
1: happy. Yeah. <laughs> and it'll probably grow better mm, now that it's yes. getting more light Yeah, you know, once they get the clean-up done. Do you know, I remember you know, in the 80s there was
2: this, they call it the hurricane in England and the UK. Oh, yes, when it they was lost, about 1988 or something. Or something. Yeah. And I think, you know, what was interesting about that was they lost, I don't know, a huge percentage of all their old-growth oaks, in, yeah. you know, in certain areas, anyway, and it does remind. And obviously, they're indigenous to the UK, right? So it does remind you, like you said, Tim, like in ec- in ecology, in ecosystems, this happens. It does clear, the, like fire does in Australia, mm-hmm. in a big way. It does mm-hmm. clear the system for another generation of yeah. plants. So it's just
1: that we happen to put houses in the way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. no. but um, yeah, it so is part like of nature. It's like a
2: pulse
3: event, and this mm. is what nature does. It you know, has big, like a flood or a fire mm. or, or a wind event. There are pulse. Massive, dramatic activity. Mm. And then the
1: the reparations,
3: you know, in ecological terms, happen gradually between those pulse events.
1: And I just hope that this doesn't um, have too much of a knee-jerk reaction with the public. I know a lot of houses were damaged and cars were squished and all sorts of things, um, but we still need trees. Yeah. And that's the thing yeah. that worries me. After the Ash Wednesday bushfires, lots of people got stuck in before council could even sort of step yeah. up and say, look, leave things alone and started ripping trees down left, right and centre and virtually clear felling their, their whole blocks. Uh, and I'm just hoping that that doesn't happen after this event because uh, I think people, some people will take advantage of this to try and get rid of a lot of big trees because they don't like living amongst them, but Mm. if you're going to go into a country area and there's big trees there, you go in there for the trees. Yeah, that's part of the landscape. Yeah, and you've just got to take the risk uh, of living in those sort of environments. I mean, if it's not the wind, it could be a bushfire or or whatever, and in some areas it's floods, and you know, there's always an inherent risk wherever you live, and to destroy the ambience of an area because you're frightened of what you've Mm. moved in amongst is a bit short-sighted, I think. I think there's
3: yeah, there's there's a huge risk that people will, will shy away from trees in, mm. in with events like this, but trees are such a long-term element of the landscape, mm. and they actually have huge value. I mean, people move to areas where there's tree cover because of that that mm. the cooling effect, the the you know the bushland, the the whole aesthetic, and uh, so yeah, let's let's. Let's settle, let this settle before we decide to yeah. rip trees out. And, and certainly
1: don't take anything down until you've had it assessed, if you're not sure yeah. of it. Because I know over the years, even with ad events like this, people will see a big tree mm. not too far away from their house. They'll be nervous of it. They won't actually call in a proper arborist to say, is this tree sound or safe? They'll bring in a tree lopper just to take it down. Mm. Uh, and that's a bit unfortunate.
3: And if you think about it, mean, that tree has taken, some of these trees that have fallen over this week are you know, 100 years old plus. Yeah. Mm. And I know that... Um, I know Burnley have done some work on this historically, and I think the White Arboretum have too, where yeah. putting a a value on a tree, whether it be a dollar value or whether it be a carbon sequestration value, these things.
2: No, they're worth a fortune. They're worth a fortune. Worth mature, a fortune. Mature yeah. Mature yeah. trees, hundreds of thousands of dollars to replace. Yeah. If yeah. you actually did it properly. Yeah, and because part of that is a yeah.
3: an equation around time. I mean, yeah. they are a, a capsule of time, aren't
2: they? Um Yeah, and I think we we know we need shade. We have the other spectre looming, which is, well, we're in it, really, climate change, right? So um, if you're going to do some crude cost-benefit analysis, you're not going to stop planting trees.
1: Mm. no. No, you've just got to keep doing it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really important. All right, yep. before we go any further, because yep. I, I know this is a topic all three of us could probably go on yeah. with yeah, for an yeah. whole hour and, and three quarters. Well, I brought some trees in, actually. Yeah. Oh, happens. good, good. Um, we better do a couple of things. One is to remind people that we're happy to have their calls come through. And so if you want to ring in and talk to us on air, uh, it's 941 90155. And if you wanted to text us uh, a question or a comment or something that you'd like, like us to discuss, uh, you can do so on zero four double eight eight zero nine eight double five. that's zero four double eight eight zero nine eight double five. and before we go any further too, I must mention in a fortnight, um, and this is something I'll hopefully mention several times during the program just to remind everybody, is our Radiothon. Now, we're looking for people to get in, engaged with this, donate money. We will have a whole range of products and vouchers and things. I'm not sure that we've got any diggers ones yet. Diggers we, membership. Good, good. So some diggers memberships. I know there's a couple of Dixonia rare plants um, vouchers, uh, and I'm hoping lots of other nurseries and... and uh, Horticultural product suppliers will step up uh and, and help us out with this. Um, it's the biggest and most major fundraiser of the year for three C R. We want to stay on air, we want to be able to be here. Well, I'm not sure about getting up at 6 in the morning on a Sunday, but anyhow, we want to be here answering your questions and giving you good advice on gardening. So remember, in a fortnight's time, the garden program will be our annual Radiothon. We want you to listen in. We want you to ring in and donate money for us to keep going for another 12 months. So please get engaged with our Radiothon week after next. So that's really important. Uh, and certainly, if there are any suppliers of anything out there that uh, we don't want live plants because we're not sure people will be able to come in and collect stuff like that, um, but certainly product and vouchers and things like that would be fantastic. So if, if there's any of those kind horticultural manufacturers out there that would like to donate some vouchers for us, we'd be really, really happy to have them. And obviously, we want our regular listeners to dig deep in their pockets, and I know there's lots of people out there trying to get your money for one thing or another, and so so I understand that there's only a certain amount that we can we can give out to different charities. But to keep us on air and to keep the gardening show strong and healthy, please get involved with our Radiothon weekend after next. So they're the main things I wanted to mention this morning. Now, guys, have you got any events coming up, anything that people should be aware of?
3: At Diggers, we haven't actually fired up our events yeah. uh, yet uh, subsequent to COVID. We did have a... a a, um, a gardener's weekend when the Miscus weekend would have been. Oh, right, yep. And now we're putting together our plan for the coming spring and summer. Uh, so there's nothing on the immediate horizon. I guess we're in the depth of winter right now anyway, but we're putting yeah. some plans around what's going to happen in the springtime and we'll get that out through our magazine yep. and our websites. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good.
1: Good. And nothing's happening at Burnley of no, you know, that the public should I'm, be aware of?
2: I'm really racking my brain on yeah. that only first coffee for the day. There must be <laughs> s- Yeah, there's yeah, got to be some something coming up. Yeah. Oh,
1: look. I mean, th- mm. the Friends of Burnley may be listening oh, in. We have lots of them God, that listen. in, wow, so uh, if in yes. fact there's anything going on at Burnley that the friends that, are up to, they could bring That's remiss of
2: me. Yes, do check out the Friends of the Burnley Gardens for all their... Mm. Events. Yeah, because they absolutely. have quite a range of events right over here. Yeah. They do.
1: Yeah. Um, but there's something else I wanted to talk to you about this morning. Yeah, sure. Uh, which I think many of our listeners will have seen a little bit of um, uh, press about this, yep. uh, and it's all a bit confusing, and we'd sure. all like to know exactly what's going on, and that's at the Collingwood Children's yeah, absolutely. Farm. absolutely. And I think that's something we should discuss because it's a very yeah. important place.
2: It's a very important place, and, um, yeah, the particular issue for listeners who don't know is that Children's Farm is about 20 acres, and then there's a, about 3,000 square metres, which is its you know fantastic community garden. It's one of the first projects the farm ever did. Mm-hmm. So um, my involvement is that I did a report for them a couple of years ago looking at everything on the farm except for the community garden mm-hmm. because the brief was, well, we're, we have a working group of community gardeners and one of the committees of management who were looking at the community garden. So, you know, you can talk about it in passing, but that's not the thing. hmm so then, um, I loved the farm, I just totally fell in love with it, although you know I had some fairly frank and fearless things to say in my, you know mm. in my paid capacity as a consultant yeah. Um, you know, just particularly about getting the the children 's farm to you know, maximize all the, the already great work that they 've mm. been doing for so long, right it's particularly around children and um Uh, with a disadvantage, but also, you know, adults at risk as well. So Mm -hmm. programs for the elderly, for um, teenagers with intellectual disabilities, so on and so forth. So it was a really extraordinary experience to try and have to kind of marry up that mission that they're trying to achieve, which is why it was created in the first place, with um, the fact that probably for most people don't realise that's the work that they do because it's all parents, grandparents, children and prams, right, and a nice cafe. And those two things live in parallel, um, but the farm's mission is really around helping people at risk. Anyway, so then I actually got a plot in the community gardens, ah. um, which, you know, is, again, another great privilege, and I really wanted to, um, uh, you know, grow some of my novel crops there and actually give the, believe it or not, give the, the manager of the farm, Connor Hickey, who's an extraordinary person, a chance to learn some gardening skills, and then I was, uh, voted onto the committee of management.
1: Oh, isn't it funny how that happens? <laughs> 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 oh, that does it? sound, <laughs> yeah. now I
2: put it that way, it does sound, uh, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you obviously free, free, went in uh, Free and fair elections. Yeah, no, you, no, it was.
1: You weren't, uh, shanghaied into it. Oh, like,
2: no way. No, well, well, actually, I'm, I'm, too many, I'm on too many voluntary boards, so part of me was like, oh, wow, do I really, you know, want to get involved? But anyway, I did. And, um, so... One of the th- so yeah, just quickly, I'll, I'll get to the actual issue at the yeah. moment, sorry to waffle on, but um, right. one of the things I think people really need to understand, and I think this is where some of the confusion lies, is that the committee of management is a voluntary board, effectively, right? So everyone on the committee of management is a volunteer, and then the farm has this kind of incredible staff um, who, you know, thinking all the time about opportunities at the farm to, to do the farm's good work. Okay. Um, so, But the other really crucial factor is the children's farm is crown land. It's a crown land reserve. Yeah. It doesn't belong to the city of Yarra. It's not private freehold. It's a crown land reserve. So it can't be sold? can't be sold. And the Committee of Management is, yeah, it's an incorporated body effectively, but it is answerable to the state government, to the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. <laughs> Whatever they call themselves. And for me, that's actually one of the more... Um, profound aspects of the farm is because it's. And if people will bear with me, I'll just briefly and you, Stephen, as well. Your eyes aren't too narrowed yet.
5: I just it. want people to kind of just sit back and
2: contemplate what We're the with word here. You. Yeah, you, you're good. Just, just for a second, think about what crown land means, right? Like, it's if it, if it just was sort of public land or state government land, I think people would be like, oh, okay. It's the, it's the, but it's crown land. The Crown Land Reserve system goes right back to the earliest days of invasion mm-hmm. and settlement, right? It literally means that it is—I uh, mean, in this case, it's reserved for a purpose. But the reason that the Crown Land system developed was to so precise, and with committees of management, yeah. whether it was for a tennis club or a cricket pitch out in the country or a forest reserve or the Geelong Lawn Tennis Club or the Phillip Island Nature Park, yeah. <laughs> was precisely to control the kind of land grab right of invasion and settlement now so that means that that's why these committees are ultimately answerable to the state government in the, in the department now um, and i guess i do want to make a, a serious point about that too because um, years ago i worked for trust for nature and i was acting director for a while and someone had we had to transfer a piece of land to back to the state government and i never forget being, being given this pretty anodyne bureaucratic form and it said you know bloody blah we will give the land back to the government it said transfer a trust for nature and then it said transferee and i looked and i went and it said her majesty queen elizabeth ii and i that you know it took about the mind-blowing emoji <laughs> i can never forget, think that's what how does that work anyway do i get a, do I have to talk to her about yeah So let me just say this that the um the children's farm, as it is now, is so hyper aware of the fact that it's a Crown land reserve sitting on the Yarra on Birrarung, mm. And of all the organisations that I'm involved with or connected to, including, you know, the Augusta University of Melbourne, it takes seriously, more seriously than any other organisation I know, that Crown land is just code for Wurundjeri, or for traditional owner land, Wurundjeri. So its efforts to make sure that Wurundjeri are uh, taken seriously at all, mo- at all, you know, for all decisions and strategies mm-hmm. are made is, is quite profound. Now, the community gardens are sitting on Crown land and they're fantastic. Over the 42 years that they've been there, there's, there's the richness of stories and everything else there that um, everybody acknowledges, right? And, in fact, going past it over many years before I was involved, you look down there and think, okay, that's wow. Mm. But they need refurbishment. And we've had a report saying that the the jumble of structures and everything there are unsafe and that we have to cease activity that's the recommendation so a lot of this is coming from the um assessment of the staff there as well that who, who, have, who have responsibility for going in and maintaining it that's not a safe place for them to work and they're mm-hmm. often forgotten this picture so what's happened is we've decided to temporarily close them so we can actually you but know the, make the emphasis them
1: safe. is definitely on temporary.
2: Definitely on temporary. Yeah, yeah. Although,
1: so I heard somewhere that you know they might be selling off or they'll change no no the no use so, of no no. Land. That's why the crown.
2: Well, no. Yeah. So it not. will
1: stay as is, but it just needs to be well. Absolutely,
2: up. yeah. But again, I I feel like in the debate which has blown up in the last week or so, there's been. I mean, for me, I've I've been a little bit shocked at the sort of trivialisation of safety. Like, mm. I feel, um, I've I've seen safety stuff done at the Burnley campus that is. It blows your mind. Mm. Like 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 adding an extra twenty centimetres to the step on a male urinal, sorry to mention that it's, it's <laughs> and, and you think, Okay, wow, I didn't realise I was so unsafe. Danger, yeah. But this is this is another level, mm. right? This is saying, okay, um this has to be you know, cleaned up, so to speak. It has to be done professionally. So that's the plan. And then there's also a huge opportunity to make the gardens, you know bring them up to, if you like, yeah. to the 21st century. So, Because one of the critical things for the farmers, I was saying, is fulfilling its mission. And so it, there's no wheelchair access. There's no all yeah. the bit, right. So it's. So what we're hoping is that, um, sure, we have a fundamental fixing up of the safety issues, and then there's this big opportunity for the, for the community to have input onto what would be a, just a, a sort of awesome, all abilities community garden mm-hmm. that... Can then go forward for the next 40 years, but no one who has a plot there now, including myself, is going to lose their growing space. Yeah, that's that's. It seems to right, yeah. me that this
3: is a the the modern workplace. That yeah. is uh, in fact a modern society is very aware of safety. Anyone that works in a in a company that's got yeah. more than 10 people is aware of what sort of safety requirements are, are yeah. required in a business or in a, an institution like a university or, or wherever. Yeah. It seems that community gardens perhaps have because of their nature of being a community garden, haven't had that sort of um, that overlook across them perhaps in the past. I
2: mean, there is precedent for this um, in, a, in a way more um, ruthless way in a way, which, you know, look, looking back on it, was about 10 years ago, Moreland Council went to the West Brunswick Community Garden, which they'd facilitated and just said, this is no good, this is unsafe, This is the governance is wrong. And they just closed them. For good? No, no. Then they put it out to tender and they rebuilt them. And now that that garden has a low fence, the public can walk in. I think actually maybe it's locked, but there's communal areas. Right. So there's there's definitely. So I'm not speaking for the farm now, but this is my mm-hmm. area of professional interest. I've been thinking about this for a long time. I've been to Brazil and Cuba looking at community gardens in very poor communities, and there's definitely. Ways to do community gardens, not necessarily, again, I'm just speaking for myself now, my sort of interest in this area. There's definitely different ways to do, um, uh, community gardens, right? So you can have, and and I recommend to the, because this is a fascinating area, so part of me is like glad that this is blown up in the sense that it's like, I think it's a discussion we need to have about all open space, right? Um, but I would encourage people, just look up, uh, Singapore community gardens guidelines, so they're, they're just incredible. Now, I don't yeah, know whether sure. you can read the, uh,
1: um, the message that's come yeah, in sure. there, Chris, but it's yeah. actually from Tim Hanfield, Oh yeah. and he, I think you've covered most of his points, he wanted right. to, uh, as you're a member of the Committee of Management, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, 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 yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, tell yeah. us and acknowledge the cultural heritage embodied in the layout and structures uh, of the existing gardens, and if mm. and, uh, if do and why uh, you propose to clear the site
2: yeah so I mean I think there is is, there's not you know in the formal bureaucratic heritage sense it's not listed as such Mm. right but I certainly acknowledge there's heritage there I think it's Mm. I mean, when you talk about intangible heritage if you I think you know you guys are probably butted up against heritage stuff before or have been involved with it yeah so there's definitely absolutely significant you know the intangible heritage around the narrative post-war migrants all the stuff Mm -hmm. absolutely um my reading and, and visiting very old allotment gardens in england is that the point, you know where there's been where there, what they are 150 sometimes 200 years old yeah. is that the structures are generally not regarded as heritage so they've been through many iterations of inquiries into this so it's in other words if if something is built that's not to standard and is regarded as dangerous even in those very old absolutely heritage listed allotments in the uk and western europe and eastern europe that that they're generally not Classified as heritage. It's, mm. it's the site itself, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, 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 like, again, that's like my take. That's not the farm's it's take. Not it's like it's the me. compost bin or the, or the trellis that's put up.
3: Is that, is that it's, what's at issue here? That there's these sort of, by uh, by gradual iteration, it has got lots of dangerous or increasingly well, dangerous structures in there? I mean,
2: well, look, yeah, I mean, that's certainly, certainly one of the issues is how to what degree. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I've looked at them before and thought. Sort of like having two positions in your head at the same time. I've gone and looked at them over the bridge, and you know, in the past, thought, "Oh, isn't that kind of rustic and jumbled?" And other times, I've just, you know, put my professional hat on and just go. Oh,
1: somebody's going to pay. Take an eye out. <laughs> well, yeah.
2: well, you know, frankly, I'm I'm lucky where I have my plot is a flat section where you know there's no structures and everything. I I did have to clean up a lot of you know bits and pieces from the previous tenant. Um, but, you know, there's other sections there where I walk very gingerly, just mm. to be absolutely sure. i caught my clothes on stuff a lot. But I don't want to overemphasise that other than that, that, that it has to be taken seriously.
1: Fair enough. All right, well, we better just mention the talkback lines and things again yeah. because we, we've been getting a couple of. Uh, oh, before I mention the talkback lines, we did get a text message come through from Susie, and it's a very simple one I can probably handle quite quickly. She wanted to know whether she can cut back her Bistropogon canariensis, the Canary Island smoke bush, back into a hard old wood. And yes, she can. Uh, it will reshoot again from quite low down, and in fact, I do my plant almost annually, back to 30 centimetres or thereabouts. Um, And if you get your plant into that sort of regular routine, well, then it'll keep it nice and fresh and young-looking. So, yes, you can cut your Bistropogon back, Susie. So, What a great question to get. Straight up, getting a Bistropogon question. You you know, some people just get lemon tree questions. We get really interesting (laughs) ones, you know, about interesting plants, which is fabulous. Um, So, if you want to ring up and have a chat to us on air, we'd love to hear from you and... I don't want to be rude. You can even ring up about your lemon tree if you wish to do so. Um, so ring up on nine four one nine zero one double five. That's nine four one nine zero one double five. Or you can send us a text message on zero four double eight eight zero nine eight double five. So um, you know, come on board. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, any sort of gardening question, we're really really happy to have a crack at. Um, was there anything else we needed to discuss about the children's farm before we move on to oh, other topics, or do you think you've covered it Oh no, like I, mean, I mean, I mean, I'd, I'd welcome any broader
2: discussion about what we're going to do with mm-hmm. community gardens generally. I suppose I, I do want to acknowledge that people are upset. I'm not. I'm, I'm. None of us on the committee are denying that. And 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 also because there has been a bit of
1: argy bargy going on, hasn't there, in the press and? Yeah,
2: like I mean, um, someone called that, uh, you know, a current affair to come and. They've been out there, have they? I I got personally door stopped. I didn't know know what that meant until the reporter apologised for doing it to me. It's kind of awesome. (laughs) I, I was like... You know, when you've got the the camera sweeping down on you, and the uh, the guy that looks like a real estate no offence to a real estate agents listen to the program obviously, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting experience. Yeah, what's wrong
1: with me? I haven't had that happen to me yet. <laughs> you get you know, you know, that yeah. threat from time to time.
3: Well, I'm going to go to Affair. Well What's actually happened? Yeah, there. yeah,
2: no. But, so anyway, um, about the so yeah, anyway, I just want to acknowledge that that the timing was a disaster because the report came. We had to assess it. We had to get advice that you you, know, you can't not act on this. This is just so serious. You've got to do it. Yeah. And then lockdown came so that was just so, not good but um so in other words we we, we couldn't have an in in-person meeting about it um yeah, so yeah. um so uh yeah um, what, what
3: sort of time frame for the the reparation works do you think
2: yeah so we've we've had this fantastic offer from via steve jolly from the from the cfmeu to help out so oh, fabulous. Um, so we need our farm staff to talk to them um work out how what, what the nature of that offer actually is. Is that, you know, like through contractors or w- with union members just fronting up as individuals? Um, so, but I just got to emphasise that obviously, you know, it's the safety manager at the farm, paid person, not a volunteer like us, who, who has to do and be involved with those negotiations and work out what the like like any quote-unquote building site, just to work out how long that would take. Yeah. So, so
1: there's really no timeline at this point in time?
2: No, but we're going to work very hard, very quickly yeah. on well, it. Well, yeah. you want to, because people yeah. don't want to
1: be locked out of their sites for too long, if that's possible, I guess. Yeah,
2: exactly. Mm. But, yeah, I, I guess I can't commit to that now.
1: Oh, dear. All right, now, I was going to move on to Tim's Trees, but we've actually got a caller coming in. So let's... Uh,
4: right... Uh,
1: Hopefully, I've got Steve. Are you there, Steve? Steve? I am, I am. Ah, Uh, Steve from Moorabach. How can we help you?
5: Look, thanks very much for taking the call. Um, Probably, like a lot of
3: people over the past 12 months, I've become pretty obsessed with growing food Mm -hmm. on my suburban block at home, and one of the things I've done is order a stack of bare fruit trees, Uh um, one of which is going to be an English
5: mulberry, and it's going to be miles too big, so (laughs) I was hoping to pollard it. I have... Uh, apart from the basic understanding of what pollarding is, I don't know how long I should leave it. Um, any mm. other tips,
1: tricks? This um, might I be guess. something you might like to have a crack at, Tim. Oh, thanks, Stephen. <laughs> um,
3: well, pollarding is a particular type of tree pruning that is more like it's taking yeah large trees and hacking them back and getting them to coppice effectively mm. from a from a set of trunks or, or large branches. Now you've got to think. That's, um, I guess I'm more familiar with pollarding for ornamental trees mm. where you're basically just managing foliage. You're not, not, oh, and potentially some, some flower, yeah. but it's usually, uh, you do it like you pollard a plane tree or something just mm. to, to keep it in, in shape for, for a streetscape. So for something like a fruiting tree, you'd have to think about how it's going to fruit. So what, what is the fruiting wood that you need to retain on the tree to keep it to fruit? So was it a white M- mulberry? Uh,
1: was it a white or a black mulberry, Steve?
4: It's a it's a black mulberry, yeah. and I guess this whole
3: thing is based on the premise that I had read that mulberry fruit on new wood. Yeah, yeah, which. which... Which, because you're pollarding it, you're generating new wood. You're just going to have to make sure that you're keeping that new wood to let it fruit set fruit. So it's going to be like a two-season rotation if that if that's going to work. So you're going to have to let it. So once it gets to size, and and pollarding doesn't start when it's a a little seedling really, because you need to get some volume into the branches first. This is how I would imagine it. If you get up to a certain size, then you start hacking it back year on year. Or well, maybe it's every, you're doing like a, a two-year rotation. So what recovers in one year's growth will be the fresh fresh growth that will produce the fruit the following year. And then in that year, cutting off the fruiting wood that's just spent to create new growth, Yeah. if that makes sense. Does that and make sense? I,
1: yeah, it sort of makes sense to me. But I'd be wondering whether, in fact, I'd be trying to pollard my tree for fruit production. Instead of doing winter pruning, I might be considering doing summer pruning, potentially. Uh, right. And getting a recrop of growth in the current su- summer, mm. I don't know. I, I mean, I've never well, tried to pollard well, a mulberry. That's,
3: that's how, I mean, it's, you know, if you're controlling the vigour of a, an apple tree, for instance, that's, you know, and apple trees are quite obvious where they produce their fruit off, yep, you know, novelty spurs. spurs. Yep. So you, I've, I've always worked on the rule. I remember many, many years ago when I first started working at the garden of Sid Earth um Penny Garnett walked through the garden and they were, yeah. the, they were the creators of Tommy's wife and we were doing winter pruning of the of the apple trees and she's like oh what are you doing that for and i was like a young gardener going cuz you prune your fruit trees in winter don't you yeah. She like well we don't we never used to do that and i learned this valuable lesson mm. that you prune in winter to create vigor yeah, yeah. So to create more growth and this I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know but that you and then you prune in summer to control vigor so yeah. so with something like what what we're talking about here is let it fruit and then clip it back, it will respond prune, you know, sorry, respond <laughs> yeah. grow, it'll grow after yeah. your, your pruning, and that'll be the fresh growth that'll bear fruit the following year. Bit of an experiment with a mulberry, I've never done it with a yeah, mulberry. Yeah,
1: I've not heard of it being done with a mulberry, but, but mm. look, I guess at the end of the day... Um, mm. There's no reason why you can't be experimental with these things. The tree will soon tell you if it doesn't mm. like what you're doing to it and will stop fruiting. I yeah. mean, you know, and then you've got to start thinking about how you would manage it later. But they are
2: very prunable, right, mold Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I You mean, can hack the bilio out of them. Yeah, if you exactly. So, I mean, Pollard is, you know, a kind of fancy way of saying... Extreme prune. Extreme prune, yeah. in a way. I must admit, I've really learned, you know, from, um, you know, Italian and Greek gardeners over the years just how... Oh, I've always hesitated to do the really hard pruning, but yeah. uh, gee, I mean, if you want to just manage the tree, mm. it does work as long, as long as you do know what you're doing. Yeah, and I think the uh, other yeah. thing about
3: it about it, hard pruning on anything is that the yeah. tree has to be quite healthy and vigorous. Like, yeah. if you're hard pruning something that's not in the best condition, that's not well watered, it's, you know, mm. it's not growing well, yeah, it's not going to have that vigour to grow or respond because um, when you think about the, the energy reserve that's in a, an established tree yeah. of any sort really that's going to that, that you can cut back hard mm. it's got this massive store underground and in it's ready it's to explode mm. yeah. so they'll always, they'll always erupt after that yeah, if they're healthy exactly.
2: um, Just a very quick one on the, back on the mulberry sorry, to just, yeah. but, but here's a mystery for me at Burnley, there's a very old one in the field station which must be 100 years plus and it's a summer fruiter But then there's this mystery one buried in the gardens. I won't say where. Yeah, because we don't want people to know. No, (laughs) no, no. Which fruits sort of in autumn? uh, In, in. I mean, I guess it's just a different or even into winter sometimes. And it's just, yeah, it's really odd. So it's still. A black mulberry? Or yeah, or maybe it could be, like, and look, I should talk... Because the white mulberries aren't always white, the fruit. True. pink or kind yeah, of a it's, dark color. But I, I sort of have just kind of looked at it a lot. I mean, it was the gardeners that had pointed it out to me, because I was saying, oh, really, Mr. Mulberry's over yum. And they were like, oh, well, come look at this one. There's still some more over here. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, uh, um, as usual, when I express ignorance, i just got to go and do some homework now, mm-hmm. work out what this thing is. I mean, but, yeah, I think... That can be pruned, end of story. Yeah. yeah. All
1: right, I hope that helps, Steve, even Paul. It does. Thank you very much. All yeah, right, like well. I might have just been overthinking it. And just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, don't be too frightened. I mean, the tree yeah. will tell you if you've, if you've mucked up. Yeah, absolutely. Thank all you all right, very much. That's a pleasure. We'll catch up. Bye. All right, now, we, we've got open lines everywhere, so if people want to ring in, please do so. We'd love to have a chat to you about any of your... Um, Things that you need to know about um, and in the meantime we have some greenery so Tim would you like to tell us what you brought in this morning and give sure. us a little bit of background. I'll, on give, you, I'll give you
3: a bit of a preamble perhaps yeah. before I get on to the specifics. All
1: right so there is a topic in a sense. There's a topic well yeah, yeah. and
3: it chimes in with what we were talking about earlier about you know the, the the trees that have fallen over in the in the storm and the and the trees that get burnt in fires and trees in the landscape I guess generally um, we, at Diggers right now, our current magazine is our our Winter Garden magazine, which Chris features in.
2: Uh, oh, this is the article we which, about
3: which is the dif- herbicide contamination. Yeah, so there's a different topic which perhaps we can touch on a bit, yeah, a bit later sure. on. Um, actually, let's touch on that now, actually, while we we've, while we've mentioned yeah. it. So um, earlier in the year, uh, this is not the tree issue. This is an mm. issue around soil contamination. Uh, and I interviewed Chris picking up a story that had got... Um, quite a bit of traction in the, um oh, again, yeah, so everywhere in the media spot. Yes. Oh, media you're talking
1: about spot. the broadleaf weed killer yeah, thing yeah, yeah, that yeah, it yeah, translated yeah, yeah. into yeah. compost and mulch and stuff. Yeah, yeah so, and
3: we're, perhaps, perhaps, Chris, I'll get you to talk about it, given that you were the expert that I interviewed for this, but we, were, we from a gardener's point of view, yeah. um, from a, a, a digger's club point of view, you know, we're, we're out there with you know, 80,000 strong gardeners across the country uh, and quite a lot of them in, in Victoria. And we were getting a few people commenting with, with us about issues of soil contamination, particularly mm. around their vegetable gardens. With, mm. uh, so it was compost or soil that was being brought in by commercial manufacturers of soil that was having a significant deleterious effect yeah. on the growth of broadleaf uh, vegetables. Uh, and this was traced back through the system um, yeah. to commercially grade compost.
2: Yeah. Perhaps Chris, you take. take yeah, in. so just, I mean, it's interesting. My so-called expertise here was more around the fact that I'd had a bad experience with this years ago. Oh, so so
1: so, so you were just uh, practiced in it, in it, so to speak.
2: Um, yeah, but I had looked into it, right? So, so in brief, uh, you know, I run these food uh, student uh, veggie plots at Burnley, and we always bring in pea straw. And, uh, I think it's all in the article, Tim, isn't yeah, it? it probably? Is, yeah, it is. So yeah. anyway, the, we had this thing where we laid out the piece drawer as mulch and the students put in their tomatoes and their beans and whatever. And then, uh, all of a sudden the tomatoes started looking like they had been, like, burnt or, or, or twisted up yeah. leaves. Really not good. And some other things did, had the same effect, but not all the crops. Yeah. So we were, you know, oh, this must be spray drift from Yarra, which it wasn't and all. That. And then I just started looking it up on the internet and all of a sudden I thought, oh, wow, I think this is, the pea straw is contaminated with a broadleaf herbicide mm-hmm. so the the straw broker the hay guy who's fantastic I said look you've got to ask the grower and it came back yeah he he confessed, confessed that he's used Lontrol, which is a clopyrolate is the chemical mm-hmm. and the internet's full of stuff on this particularly uh, big bad stuff that happened in California where um, so yeah so a, a lot of it over there came from the very intense turf culture in the United States, right? Which honestly is this would be worth a show in itself. Mm. Our lawn culture in this country is slack. And lazy and informal. There are a Good. few exactly compared to. Oh yeah. Books have been written about this stuff in America, right? So they were. They're they were,
1: obsessed by their lawns in America. They're not
2: only obsessed, but it's actually regulated. Hmm. I mean, it's a it's sort of extraordinary story. Like the big, some of the bigger turf companies in America are listed on the on Wall Street. Yeah. They've done that classic thing of lobbying politicians to make it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a wild story. But anyway, the the the, the upshot you is you sort of
1: tend to say only in America, but. It, but the well, British can be just as per- paranoid about their laws. Oh, is there are cul-de-sacs
3: in Australia.
2: Yeah, weird. yeah, no, no, no. And there's, uh, there, uh, as a result of this whole thing blowing up, I found a very interesting YouTube channel, uh, uh, let's just say in Australia, of a, a young Turfie, who's an awesome guy, but it, it, he's got 100,000 subscribers and it's all about the chemicals and it's all about the... I it, know, oh, it's... Oh, no, it's um, so anyway, so yeah, look, so what happens is, this, this is the scary part, that we had the one-off incident with the peace draw. Right, let's say. So, because he, I just said to the, our guy, look, I can't, every year we buy the mulch. We've got to check what was the herbicide mm-hmm. regime, right? So that's under control for us. And then, I and then reading the international situation, I thought, okay, that's that's a that's a sort of one off, right? Yeah. Anyway, then this situation blows up in Central Victoria and also Melbourne suburbs over summer. Yeah, and started putting two and two together. It's like, well, why all of a sudden? Why haven't we had this experience before? Oh, sorry, I need to say fundamentally, right from the start, that, that these herbicides. They're called broadleaf herbicides because they don't affect grasses, mm. or mysteriously brassicas. Really? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so this is the thing. So, there's a few things for people to get your heads around. So, in other words, that's why it's so confusing to people because you're growing your veggies and you think, why are my tomatoes withering and dying or looking deformed? But my, you know, cauliflower's awesome. It's that's that's because we just think that contamination is sort of a universal across the soil, right? It's mm. not. It affects. Nightshade family, so Solanaceae, yep. really badly, and Fabaceae, peas and beans. So one of the things is in agriculture, these broadleaf herbicides are used because grasses are immune, and so wheat and corner grasses, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And so they overs- they can overspray a young germinating weed crop, kill all the weeds in between, and bingo, you don't have to plough or you know till, mm-hmm. right? The weeds out. So. So to me it was like, Well hang on a second, why has this suddenly happened? And then anecdote so when when there was a bit of media about it, I had ex students calling me saying during lockdown there were so many of our clients wanted the lawn to be perfect. There was just this obsess <sighs> so, so so then I thought, okay, and a few of us started going to Bunnings just to, you know, to see what products are available. Yep. And sure enough, on the shelves, just in your average big green temple as I like to call it, you know, there they are, these phenoxy group of herbicides sitting there on these products. So, I mean, um, if if so the point being that the source of the compost contamination was municipal green waste compost, so people putting their lawn clippings into their bins. Now, uh, so, okay, so so in other it words... It could also be... Um,
3: it, yes, it could be that. It could be golf courses. Could it could be, be golf courses. It could courses, be, could could be playing fields. Absolutely. And, so, so anywhere so, with this turf management yeah. going on, this... Uh, Largely unregulated and, usage. No, I'll is, stick with my me.
1: lawn daisies. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and interestingly enough,
2: um, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, speaking of um, Cullingwood Children's Farm, one of the awesome horticulturists there, you know, they're thinking of all these new programs to run for the public. He, as a result of this, he's, he wants to run uh, courses on you know, non-chemical organic lawn care. Hmm. and i've got to say and again andrew smith at burnley who does an incredible job at the gardens there it's effectively like that there. occasionally a bit of spot spraying but very rarely well, in that, other words we yeah. have to ask ourselves yeah. um, what i mean because the, the standard of the perfect monocultural lawn in america is it's putting green yeah and it's and, and like a lot of these things what what i found extraordinary is looking up like a lot of things with it, with America, they're kind of even when they, you know, growing lawn, they're super professional. So there's very open YouTube channels saying, you know, like you got to be careful because spray drift could kill your neighbor's trees. This is how you stop it, yeah, right? And you okay. think, because <laughs> some of these chemicals too are actually target broadleaf woody plants. Mm. So in other words, like camber, for example, will, you know, do a lot of infiltration through the soil. Now, would a, yep.
1: a weed and feed type product be similar?
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Because I
1: know I had a client who rang me up in an absolute panic because half of her perennials were dying in her border. Her lemon tree was yep. looking really crappy. Yeah. And I went over to have a look and I said, this doesn't make any sense. It, it looks to me like there's some sort of chemical. Mm. infestation coming in from the sides and I said your son-in-law didn't happen to spray the lawn with anything oh, did he right. yeah. and she said oh yes he used one of those weed and feed products because we had some broadleaf weeds come out and I said well that's what's killing all your perennials and that's what's killing your lemon tree at the same time yeah and it was just one of those things and it obviously will move with water in the ground yeah uh, and Absolutely. it just went straight down through the perennial well, it's, it was exactly those products mm. that were the re- the
3: residues that yeah, were coming no. through in the commercial compost. Yes, precisely. Th- th- so that's that th- and not
2: necessarily detectable in a normal soil test. Mm. So you have to do, it, you know, what's called a bio say so Grow some potentially vulnerable plants like oh, tomatoes, yes. and then they become them, a test. And, and, then, and then exactly. So, yeah. um, you know, I tested at Burnley some of the batches from Central Victoria, and yeah, it wasn't
1: pretty. Yeah. Mm. All right. We better move on because Rachel has been very, very patient on the line. Oh wow. So we to go in and see if you're there. Hello, Rachel, are you there?
6: Yes, I am. Ah,
1: fantastic. Rachel from Q, and you've got a question specifically for Chris by the looks of things.
6: Yeah, I think we talked before
1: right.
7: about sweet um, potatoes and yams, and I just wondered if we could transfer that to a small growing space, like can how, how do they grow vertically
6: and
4: any you know tips and tricks around that?
2: Oh, well, thank you, Rachel. Yeah, you're probably I'm not sure where you heard me speak, but... um. Um yeah, and I'm pretty obsessed with this topic, so I actually will I quite like to get back to the Diggers magazine, so I'll answer <laughs> i answer this no, yeah, very oh, no. much. Um, yeah. So Rachel, with sweet potatoes, um, you know, they they they're they're effectively uh ground cover kind of creeper kind of plants. So they sprawl along the ground. So I have seen people try and trellis them, but it sort of only works for a few varieties. So really you just have to kind of bite the ball and let them do their thing and sprawl. And when it comes to yams, um I actually have brought in some New Zealand yams for Steve today, which is the Oxalis, Stephen, but these are not true yams. I think the yams you probably heard me talk about were in the genus Dioscoria, Mm -hmm. which is an incredibly beautiful plant as a climber, herbaceous, deciduous climber. (coughs) Excuse me. And they produce this, you know, different types of yams, and they produce a big tuber that you eat, which is absolutely delicious. So, um,. I try and grow some of these for the Friends of Burnley Gardens every year. So if you, what I'd recommend is in late spring, come down to Burnley and get some. I, you know, there, there's a a type of Dioscoria called Dioscoria discolor, which Roraima or Rorama, I never know how to say, mm-hmm. nursery sell. I don't know if you sell these, Stephen. No, I well. do. No. No. But that's a beautiful plant. Mm-hmm. And it's not really an edible one, but that's the only one I know now that's kind of got a little bit of a niche fan, fan following. Yeah. Um, but but the rest of them um, uh, aren't widely available, to be honest. But my last point on this, though, is that look out for what's really interesting. There are two indigenous diascoria yams, actually four, but there's two main ones. One in Western Australia, which was one of those extraordinary Aboriginal crops, Dioscoria hastifolia, and uh, the tucker bush guy over there, tucker bush, Trademark registered, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah. He grows it, although it's not available in Victoria at the moment. And then there's the Diascoria transversa, which is a beautiful indigenous yam still eaten widely by traditional owners in northern Australia. So,
1: Would they be growable here, though?
2: Yes, I'm growing them. Ah, you are? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're That's very skinny. They're a very skinny one. They're called pencil yams. But they're, they're they like... They cook fast, eh? <laughs> they cook fast. And, and they're one of those ones like the yes. Chinese yams that you can actually eat raw, mm-hmm. right? Hmm.
1: It's a fascinating genus of Dioscorea. Oh yeah. It, I mean those big elephant puts things. That exactly. That's, are, sorry, that's the grow other as one. and ornamental yeah. uh, mm. are in that same genus. And, Absolutely. So that's the other one with the new. And niche Madagascar following. has got yeah. masses of yeah. species of yams. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, some. Might be Q Botanic Garden site or something that I follow on um, uh, social media, uh, and they're forever showing yet another species, yeah. some giant yam that's been discovered in northwestern Madagascar or whatever. Yeah, it's that's amazing.
2: Right. It's a really um, interesting genus. And, um, so, I'm, I'm really, thanks so much for the question, Rachel. I hope you can, we can help you get your hands on some at some point.
1: Does yeah, that help right?
6: I'll pop down. Yeah, it did. Yes. Yeah, stay away from the soup they won't
7: work with my limited space.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah, do, it doesn't sound like it'd be an easy crop you you to grow couldn't you? Could, Could you put them in hanging baskets and Sweet, well, sweet potatoes actually can be
2: um, as an ornamental, which they've and they're very ornamental. Yeah, the plants, lovely foliage. The foliage is beautiful, and I've got some really rare ones. Um, I think you saw them in all yes, the glory at Burnley. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're used in hanging baskets in America mm. all the time, yeah. even in those yeah, short... coloured leafed ones. are yeah. all over the place. Though. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
1: you, you see them in those mixed plantings, yeah. like trailing everywhere. The gold ones or the purple mm. ones. Well, or... occasionally
2: available here as a mm. kind of tricolour. Whatever they call, what's they called? Potted colour thing.
7: Bloomers.
1: Hanging bloomers. Yeah. 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 All right. All right. We'll catch up with you again, Rachel, and thanks for ringing in. Thank you. Bye. All right. Uh, I think Ian is in online now, so we might go to Ian because he's got possibly something that's you know, connected with what we've been speaking about. Good morning, Ian. Uh good morning guys how are we going we are very good indeed thank you now you wanted to talk about lawn clippings
7: yeah yeah look i um yeah i'm probably one of the guilty par- well i am one of the guilty parties that uh, uh puts my uh lawn clippings in my green bin um uh, but i do i have in the past tried to use it um and i've put it in my compost bin uh but i've had just ended up with a uh, very nasty compost with uh, Weeds growing up every time, where I put it, you know, everywhere I put it. So my um, last like lot of compost is like that. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, if you're going to use lawn clippings, obviously you're going to have the seeds and things in uh, in in the, in the clippings. What, what's the process? What's your process of dealing with that, so that you know when you do actually use it, it's not going to uh, cause other problems such as weeds. I think
3: I think again the first thing to to think about is what you've done to the lawn before you mowed it and collected clippings. So I think the issue that we're seeing with the the soil contamination is where people have applied a chemical like one of these knockdown yep. uh, broadleaf herbicides. If you've not done yep. that, then lawn clippings are actually a really valuable resource for for composting and for, for organic gardening. Yeah. Um, I
7: don't. I've never used um, never used that uh, that stuff. Well, I, you're the you're only, in the uh, clear. Yeah, yeah, the only time I've ever used um. Uh, I use a very small amount of glyphosate or whatever it is, Roundup, uh in extreme circumstances with stuff that I can't get rid of any other way. That's that's about it for me. Um yeah, so oh, I'd say I've
3: your done. your lawn clippings are a, uh, an essential resource. I mean, mm-hmm. I think as an additive to a compost, lawn clippings are very high in nitrogen. Green lawn clippings, in particular, when they're green when you cut them, obviously. Mm. Um, but they're a great yep. compost activator. You get you've got to get the ratio between yep. nitrogen
1: and carbon correct, but they are a great compost um, activator. Um, and um, most composts, unless you really hot compost, you're going to get weed growth yep. in virtually everything. I mean, I put everything into my compost. If one of my guests died at dinner, they'd probably end up in the compost. So everything <laughs> so where you're goes... End up <laughs> <to>? <laughs> Undoubtedly. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, actually, on my gravestone it's going to say, Stephen Ryan, my dates and underneath it's going to say, gardener, planted at last.
0: Uh, okay. uh, i, I I've told my
1: partner that if that doesn't show up on my gravestone, they're in serious problems. Uh, I'll haunt. Um, but I use my compost... Uh, I either dig it into my vegetable gardens or I throw it over my garden beds, but then I put a mulch over the top of that, Mm. and that solves the weed issue. Because you don't have the weeds at the top level. Yeah, the the weeds will try and germinate under the mulch. They won't make it, and so... I, because I, ha- I have forget-me-nots that go into my mm. compost, I have um, uh, all sorts of stuff that I know is going to be seeds, and, and because my compost doesn't rot down quickly enough and get really hot, I tend to cold compost because things go in day yeah. by day, mm. um, I know I'm going to have weed growth. Which is, that's,
3: that's normal for a domestic
1: garden yeah, compost.
7: Mo- not many domestic oh, gardeners uh, are uh, that It's obsessed. just mainly the, um, yeah, the, the only problem I've got, is, uh, it's just that last little compost I did, I Uh, I I put it all out in the garden. Admittedly, I didn't mulch it, but uh, I'm now getting little, you know, spikes of of, of the grass clippings. You know, I'm I'm sure that's where it's from coming up. Um, Mm. So yeah, I might just throw some mulch over. Yeah,
3: probably throw some mulch over is probably the easiest way to manage it. But typically with grass clippings, when it's from a mower, you're just getting. You're not going to get any living. You're Mm. just getting leaves. They're not going to actually strike and 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 grow grow another grass plant. So unless you're getting roots
1: of cooch or something like that Mm. into your mower, that's right. um, But Most lawns, especially if they're not being... Turned into bowling green lawns. We'll have a bit of winter grass and things like that yeah. in it. And winter grass will seed at a very low level, so it can be mm. you know only millimeters high, and it can mm. still set yeah. seeds. And you'll pick up the the winter grass seed with your lawn mower, and that might be yep. what's coming up in your in your mulch mm. or in your compost. Yeah, yeah. and
2: also, Ian, do you sometimes leave the clippings sort of raked over your lawn? I mean, do you? What? Well, I mean,
7: no, uh, I just I just use a grass catcher and, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, and, it, and and then throw throw it straight into the into the compost bin. Saying maybe leave the leave the clippings later. Like, yeah, like yeah. that's somewhere. what we do here. Right? Yeah, there yeah, you go. Yeah, I don't rake up my clippings the...
1: anymore yeah.
2: either. I just yeah. leave them on Be- the lawn because the usual uh, tra- trap, if you will, is that if you if you catch the clippings and take them away, that's effectively like you know a crop, mm-hmm. right? Which means you if you wanted it green, you've got to then fertilise, right? So yeah, it, you, you should ideally you should recycle the clippings by just leaving them distributed evenly across the lawn. That, okay, yeah, right.
3: And you can get mowers, yep. and you can you can do it with your own mower. Well, most mowers will do it; they'll throw it out to the side. But mm. you can get mowers that are designed not to have a catcher, yeah. and will spread it rather than a, it. rather than that line that you. Yes, put on the yes, side you up with lines that, that it then actually will throw the grass. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and okay.
1: of course, if you mow your lawns yeah. reasonably frequently, so there's not too much lawn there, mm. then you don't have as much issue mm. with you know a big thatch building up on top. Yeah. So uh, yeah. regular mowing. I helps. think
3: it's important to to um, I guess to articulate that lawns are not bad i mean no. you know, I, I guess there was a period through the perhaps through the millennial drought where it was you know we've got to get rid of lawns because they're really hungry for resources and water and but you can manage a lawn and quite a, a beautiful green lawn that's a, an open void space mm. in a garden which is important in a design sense. yeah visually you can manage that in a very organic way we in fact we do it at heronswood and st edson yeah, earth I, mm. not our lawns are not fed No, no. Well, I don't
1: don't normally feed my lawn at all, and it's got lots of clover in it. It's got um, lawn daisies. Uh, I do object to the dandelions occasionally because of the look, so I go around and I hand flick the dandelions out of the lawn. And if I see any paspellum or any of those Mm -hmm. other things, I just manually deal with them uh, when they annoy me. Um,
7: I've got also, speaking of that, um, I've got some, um, I think it's an ornamental oxalis. It's a real flat growing. Uh, thing, mm-hmm. um, and it's uh, got a, a, a rather attractive uh, dark pink uh, flower. Yep. Uh, it's only in one certain, in only one patch in the lawn, and mm-hmm. uh, it, that that it, it sounds like it looks like automatic oxalis to me. It
1: has a clover shaped leaf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably oxalis purpurea, uh, which is one of the South African oxalises, and it? it actually comes in quite a range of colours and has quite a large and quite showy flower on it. Uh, is it in flower yep. now? Yes, it is actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it certainly sounds like Oxalis purpurea. Um, and look, you know, those things, they come up in the winter, they do their thing, they die away in the summer, uh, they're very mm. flat to the ground. Uh, I've got about three colours of Oxalis purpurea in the garden at home, and I've just let them rip through where, well, what used to be what I would I called my Barbara Cartland border, where I had my <laughs> roses. Uh, most of the roses have now disappeared because it got a bit too shady for them, but there's still a number of deciduous shrubs in there, and the Oxalis carpets the ground in the winter, gives me this mass of white, mauve and pink flowers, which look fantastic, and... The driveway keeps it from going any further because the wheels mm-hmm. will run over it. So it's, it, 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 do, it has actually crept down into the edge of the driveway. Um, but it disappears in the summer and it doesn't swamp anything. And it mm. gives me something to look at when mm. my deciduous shrubs yep. are looking really ordinary. Uh, well, when so, I might... I might.
7: I might pick some of it out of the lawn then and
1: perhaps uh, I've got a, some spots in the garden. I've just done, the last YouTube video I did was on ornamental oxalises. It didn't touch on that particular species. I mean, there's 580-odd species worldwide in the genus, plus God knows how many selections and hybrids mm. are out there. Um, and so it's a huge genus, oxalis, uh, and it comes right. from all over the world. We've even got a few native oxalises um, and... I just think that there's so many really interesting ornamental ones that give such good value for, for space they take, uh, and most of the winter-growing ones don't do any harm to anything that's summer-oriented. They just are there. And yeah. so I'm, I'm not at all phased about... Even the weedy Oxalis pescopri I mean, I wouldn't intentionally introduce it into my garden. No. But if I had a garden full of it, I would certainly start to learn to live with it and love it, because otherwise you, you spend your whole life ripping your hair out trying to get rid of the stuff. And, and it, it goes and you too. Won't. It, mm. it's, it's a pulse of time, and then yeah. it's gone. Yeah. And then it's gone again, mm. yeah. So, you know, even in the vegetable garden, as long as you're growing summer crops, it probably doesn't matter <laughs> yeah. if you've got some oxalis. I think mean. I've known
2: over the years people who really freak out with the oxalis mm. pest capri in their veggie gardens, yeah. but it's my advice has always been, would well, just if you plant something that grows quickly and just shades it, mm. I mean, it's not It can get a bit, you know, out of hand. But on the other hand, like I think you're saying, that crops will quickly outgrow it, right, and shade it. So, yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, they're they're not as bad as people think. I mean, they're impossible to get rid of, but they're not actually that much of a nuisance mm. and i think that's where you've got yeah. to start getting a little bit more sort of realistic about some of these things uh so yes any if you want to know more about oxalis have a look at my latest youtube video
2: and are you growing this one yeah. uh, I, mean, I, I
1: had it in the garden i haven't got right. it at the moment so if you've got some spare yeah, tubers there chris i'd be very happy yeah, to take sure some home. um i just wish it had flower and be showy no you gotta eat it
2: well actually uh, um so, just quickly for everyone, I guess we're talking about Oxalis tuberosa, yeah. which is uh, sort of in many ways misnamed New Zealand yam. Very it's misnamed. misnamed yeah. just because it's popular there, but it's actually a, a very ancient crop from the Andes. Yeah. A bit like the kiwi fruit. Yeah. A bit like a kiwi yeah, but fruit. Yeah, that was an
1: intentional yeah, right. ploy. Yeah.
2: And actually, but there's oh, too many tangents yeah. here, but I've got, right. I have, a, I have a, a hot sauce that says right, anyhow, it wasn't the kiwi. We can plan- say goodbye to Ian. Yeah, okay, yeah, see you <laughs> Bye. Actually, the New Zealanders... Didn't come up with the term kiwi fruit. It was a very famous Californian woman. Yeah, yeah. So I'll have, I can't remember her name, but she was one of the early, she, she literally introduced fresh mushrooms into America to compete with the Taiwanese in the early sixties. She fell into this business by accident. And it was when, um, some of these Chinese gooseberries were coming from New Zealand that she had them for years and very few people bought them, occasionally some New Zealanders. And in the end, she says that I went, well, let's just call it. I don't know kiwi fruit, it's, right? So, so it wasn't the New Zealand We, t- being we very always clever. blame them. Yeah. Well, have, you can because they're close, you know. You yeah, can. exactly. So uh, anyway, oh yes, yeah, so Oxalis tuberosa, it does. We have. I, I have a fantastic colleague, Steve Spence, and he's got all sorts of interesting varieties, and they mm. do flower more often.
1: Mm. I was going to say. Yeah. Some cooking tips would be handy because oh. I found them difficult to. Well, I mean, you could <laughs> bake them and that was all right. I tried microwaving them and oh. they tasted foul. Oh wow! Um, what yes. would you do with them? Okay, so just so people to
2: visualise what I have in my hand now, it's it's a a pink tuber.
1: Yeah, it looks a bit like a witchetty grub. A bit like <laughs> a pink witchetty grub,
2: um, and in New Zealand they're called yams. They're like a lemony potato, mm. right? Um, I did give Stephen a slightly concerned look when he said that they tasted disgusting but no but that's because normally they that, that lemony thing is just so yeah. delicious so I, I think baked with oil and salt whatever yeah. for 40 minutes is fine isn't is make is, is the, the perfect way, way them. Yeah. but whole, i like i like whole, them bo- not, not whole. Sure. you know okay so this is the thing because they're only yeah they're not big too, they? uh, yeah so they're very yeah. very moorish um and they're bite-sized and so i think they're very child-friendly fussy mm-hmm. eaters all that stuff right In fact, one of my brothers, uh, who went on one of these paleo no carb diets a while ago, was still. He was like, "Yeah, I'm going to make an exception for these. These are awesome." Mm -hmm. So, and I've been making students grow them now for about eight years, and uh, I think it's 100% loving them. I did, but I have a policy of asking every time I bump into a kiwi. I always say straight up, you know, do you know this thing? And usually they've all heard of it, and their auntie and their mum used to grow them. And only once, they usually say, I really miss them. But they've not been growing them? No, 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 they miss, sorry, they miss buying them. Ah. yeah, so not... They big, actually, they usually don't know how to grow them. And only once, and someone say, oh, no, they look like alien grubs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that's the only time I've
3: had... Yeah, neg- but,
1: I mean, they're not alien grubs. If somebody served you yeah. alien grubs, you'd go, oh, God, yeah. they're yeah, alien yeah, grubs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh,
3: <laughs>
2: if right, someone served me alien grubs, i go, what's this? looks interesting.
3: So
1: <laughs> I...
2: Uh, yes, um, you know they're they're very they're an unusual mm. thing. Easy to grow though. Yeah. Now there's mm. another crop that's yep.
1: similar to look at to that, yep. which I did find really difficult oh. to work out what oh. to do with, and that was the Tropiolum tuberosum. That's a fascinating one. Uh, which is one of the nasturtiums that produces ochre. Yes, yeah. yeah, and it gets a, a a similar sort of tuber underneath it in some way. So ways. that's
2: mashua. This is ochre. Oh, mm. okay, right. So so the New Zealand yam is ochre, O C A, mm. and the mashua, yeah, is a, is a nasturtium. Yeah. Um, which with without the giant cabbagey leaves, mm. um, which I
1: found cabbage white butterflies absolutely adored. Uh, yeah, I, I, they got stuck into it as well, which didn't go down well with me. I no,
2: but the mashua is definitely hot, like a hot. It's like a radish to me, yeah. hotter than radish. Mm. Um, one of the things is they are the, they are short day plants. So they don't start forming their tubers till um, after equi- autumn yeah. equinox. But one of the things about mashua is that. They're not heat tolerant. They're tropical, but, of course, they're way up in the thousands of metres up in the Andes. And so I've found mashua is a bit of a wimp. When it comes to well hot I'd like heat. to have a
1: crack at it again yeah. I mean I eventually gave up on it because I couldn't work out how to cook it and uh, uh, and yeah. because I was fighting off the cabbage white butterflies and everything sometimes I just take the easy road out but I'd love to have another crack at that tropiolum again if you ever yeah. get any tubers uh, of it. Absolutely, can do yeah. Um, yeah. I
2: actually like find the leaves are a lot smaller than normal nasturtium I and mean, I actually don't mind chewing on them, I think yeah. they're quite tasty yeah. I, I, I find that, I think the normal nasturtium, I know some people like to eat it but it just brings back weird memories of Gardening jobs when I was a teenager, yeah, and yeah. the smell of nasturtium. Yeah, running pulling out, them out of yeah, the just, y- yeah, just hopping back in the car
1: and the
3: waft.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just that's right, stinking of nasturtium. Oh
1: uh, dear. All right, uh, we've got another call that's coming, so we better go and deal with yep. this one. Um, Andrew from Clifton Hill, are you there, Andrew? Andrew, have I got Andrew?
5: I'll try again. My students, and I, I and live in I... Clifton Hill and I've only got a small uh, backyard, so I, I grow everything out of pots. Yeah. Um, and I've got, I've got a, um, a macadamia, uh, sorry, I've got, I've got two things. I've got a macadamia integrafolia uh, times pichophila. It's oh. a, a pink macadamia. Um, and I'm just wondering how long that, that takes to, to grow macadamias. Um, and the second thing is I'm, I'm growing this, this avocado, um, which I've grown from a nut. And it's, it's also in a little pot, and it's about a meter, a meter, um, a meter tall now. Um, but these pesky possums—they just keep nibbling the top of my of my tree, of my avocado. And I, I don't know—I know that I've heard that avocados take a long time to get fruit, but I'm just wondering—is there anything I can do, you know, that, that's safe um, and environmentally friendly to, to stop these pesky possums from nibbling at my my avocado tree?
1: Oh, no. move the avocado trees about the only thing you can probably do for that um, or put a, some yeah, sort of cover barrier. Yeah. yeah, You've got you've to be able to
3: keep them off. Well, there's chilli powders and there's mm. garlic sprays but they wash off straight away and yeah, possums are pretty clever little yeah. buggers too. Yeah
1: and, and I think they actually quite like Mexican occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> the well,
2: the macadamia is an interesting, that's a hybrid of the two main mm, ones. Yep. So sorry Andrew, was that being chewed by the possums too? I missed that. That no, was just the oh, no, that Isn't one. That one's just,
5: uh, that one's just died, actually, Chris. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what's happened to that one. It's, I'm looking at it now. It's, it's brown and it's very, very sad.
3: But um, the macadamia died. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right.
5: I'm, okay. I'm only going in a small in a small pot. I think I need to get a bigger pot because I don't have any. I don't actually have any ground soil, so I can only grow. Right. Grow things in pots.
3: Well, they. I mean, in climatically, they will work in Melbourne. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's big. I mean, I've got. I planted one at my place. Probably eight years ago, and got my first set of nuts last year. Oh, well done! So yeah. they will—they will fruit and happily grow in Melbourne. I think both of the species will. Yep. I think uh, so I the hybrid probably a, would as well do quite well. Well, the hybrid, I think, is probably one called Pinkalicious, If it was a pink, yeah, form. But that's a cultivar that is a hybrid of the two, and that is definitely a f- will fruit here, uh, here.
2: Yeah, there's a bit of um, genetic variation in the two species. So I've—I've I've heard that. Yeah, instinctively you would say that the. Is it the Integrafolia which grows in, anyway, the one, the yeah, species is from northern sweet, New South Wales, right, yeah. should be the one that does better here, but there are populations of the Queensland one that actually are more cold tolerant. So, anyway, you just have to sort of know which cultivar you're buying, or hybrid mm-hmm. or grafted one. Um, but, that, but with possums, I mean, it's just the bugbear. It just—they are, they're there. Pain. I've had an avocado completely destroyed by mm. possums mm. before, yeah. and I've got yeah. a few
1: things dying in my garden from possum attack. I mm. hope that's given you some ideas there, Andrew. And yeah, we'll, thanks a lot, jo. We'll thanks catch lot. up with you later. Bye. Now I've got a job to do, and that is to remind people of the Radiothon. I'm supposed to talk about it Mm. uh, several times during the program, and we've only done it once so far. So don't forget, people, um, Sunday week, so not next Sunday, the following one uh, is the 3CR Radiothon, where we're hoping that uh, all of you listeners out there who get, I think, seriously good value out of the people who come in here and give their time for free uh, to answer all your gardening questions, that you will... Repay by helping 3CR stay on air, so we want you to donate money to 3CR uh, weekend after next. There will be a whole pile of interesting um, vouchers and horticultural product uh, that you'll be able to... Uh, obtain for a really good uh, donation, so just keep that in mind that you can get something back as well. Um, I understand that Pam Vardy, who used to sit in the chair I'm sitting in now, is coming in specially for the radiothon, so hopefully Pam will be here, probably dealing with this equipment in front of me better than I do. Um, and so listen in in a fortnight, and please jump on the phone and donate to 3CR to help keep us on air. So that's the radiothon for 3CR. So don't forget. Get, please. Um, now there was a text that came up there a minute ago, and it seems to have disappeared. Somebody wanted to know about propagating Abyssinian bananas. Oh wow! Um, which is also We've slightly got, off. Well, that's a, that's odd a, diggers,
2: a digger's enemy thing.
3: Yeah. yeah. It was. It was actually. Uh, it's if they want to buy one, yeah, they can buy one straight
1: from the Diggers Club yeah. right now. Yeah, Abyssinian got them bananas way. though are monocarpic, aren't they? They yeah, they so don't produce clumps of stems like the normal normal Cavendishes right. and other banana varieties. So, so wait, only...
2: there's more. There is a trick. Oh, but I'll let
1: yeah. Tim go Well, first. well let's let's yeah.
2: actually let's actually
3: talk about what an Abyssinian banana yeah. is first yeah. Yeah, for everyone out there. So an Abyssinian banana is a it's a it's a it does, it's a fruiting banana, mm-hmm. but the banana, banana itself is quite small, so it's not, it's not one that you would grow for the fruit as such, yeah. in the traditional sense that we, that we, um, eat bananas. Um it's, Incetae ventricosum is the, is the, is the plant. An enormous looking tropical banana thing. Like, it, when mm-hmm. they grow, and then in fa- very fast growing, have a huge tuber underneath them, which, mm-hmm. which I'm sure Chris can talk about. Um, very fast growing, Wonderful uh, well, the specimens that we 've got have got a beautiful midrib which yep. is red, yep. yeah yep. that runs lovely it. foliage, yeah, yep. enormous yep. banana leaf foliage and the the bowl of these things when they get established is uh, it 's probably two or three metres in
1: diameter. Yeah, I had one doing really well at Massage until it blew over. Yeah. Oh, right, <laughs> yes. And so, then I had a lot of stuff to get rid of. Yeah,
3: well, and they actually accumulate a hell of a lot of carbon. They're very, mm. I mean, as a carbon sequester, they're mm. an incredibly efficient thing mm. because they grow very quickly. Yeah. And, they're, and, they, and we use them at, at Heronswood when they get to the stage when they're about to die, which we'll get to in a second. We basically pull all the leaves out uh, and mulch that down and use it in compost. Yeah. And there's a hell of a lot of material that can then mm. go back into the soil as a soil ameliorant. Um, but their lifespan is limited. They're monocarpic. Mm. They flower once and die. So in terms of propagation, um, you've, you, once you get one to a point where it's flowering, and we've got one flowering at, at Heronswood right now, uh, it, it takes uh, the flower, The flowers, I guess it's a raceme or whatever, mm. technically whatever it is. No, no, it's a, whatever it is. The flower yes. is the inflorescence. Yes. Um, it takes quite a long time to ripen and produce, produce its seed. Um, but then we can go again from seed. Yeah. So, so it's seeds seed. that you would use yes. as a rule. Yeah, you, you, offsets kind of don't work. Sort of, they sort of sit as one big, unless you've had any um, success. So, here, so
2: I I've, um, absolutely love them. First saw them in Henrik van Leeuwen's garden um, years ago, and, and then he was on Gardening Australia, and Jane Edmondson was waxing lyrical about one of those little connections there. And then I just Googled it and found that it's a major edible crop in Ethiopia, like mm. really significant. And during the early 80s with the famine there, um, the people in the highlands who grew in sete or Abyssinian yeah. banana did well, survived. So it's become a little bit more famous outside that mm. agro ecosystem. Mm. So what they eat is the, yeah, the giant corm underneath.
1: So it's not the banana itself? Though. No, 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 no. no, no. This is
2: what's so interesting. So the banana, you can't, I've eaten, I've got, because we had the f- lots of, I had three that. F- Flowered beautifully at Burnley and produced all these fruits, but absolutely was I found extraordinary. So it's quite quite sweet, but they have these giant black seeds, which is what normal Cavendish bananas would once have had, right? Yeah. So they eat the corn, but they also get the the mid ribs actually, and, and yeah of the of the leaves. So I suppose sort of like the part of the petiole going into the leaf, and they just this laborious process of kind of stripping it and make a kind of um, paste which they ferment. So there's two food products.
1: Now you're, you're talking about fermenting here. Is this an alcoholic beverage? No, 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 yeah, no, no. It's oh. a really significant oh, survival food. But, but here,
2: here's the thing. So what, the, so hang on. So this is a, this is a, this is the crop. This is the, this is a thousand years old. They have cultivars and you think, well, how do you develop cultivars that you consistently propagate if you don't, yeah. if you know, can't do it clonally? So what they do is in, in Ethiopia, you either, you cut them to the ground mm. and you just shove a machete or a, Spade through the corn, mm-hmm. and that induces pups. Oh, so it'll have you done that? No. So, yeah. I, tr- I, I tried, I didn't want to use fungicide because I'm not into chemicals and the whole thing, the thing was a disaster. Oh, rotted. so it just rotted away. Right. So, yeah. But I've seen um, people on YouTube do it. Yeah. And I've obviously seen footage on, of people doing it in the indigenous culture way. Yeah. So, um, so maybe with a bit of a collaboration here. Because this is the thing too, because yeah. I, I had one that I bought from. Um, uh, is it Blue Lotus Farm up at the Yarra mm-hmm. Junction, and that lasted ten years before it flowered. So, mm-hmm. and then, so, but the, unfortunately, the ones that I've propagated from the seed I have, I've got a little seed. I've actually got a seed orchard of them at mm-hmm. Burnley because I want them to become more popular. And I have reached out to the Ethiopian community, which is a, it's a very specific mm-hmm. cultural group from Ethiopia yeah. that are into them, right? So, I've. Embarrassed myself by asking Ethiopia, and they're like, nah, eh, Yeah, we're, what's that thing? What are you yeah, talking yeah. about? <laughs> Although I, I do know someone from Addis Ababa who goes, yeah, they were famous for some people after the famine. Anyway, yeah. um, so where was I? I've forgotten. Uh, oh, seed orchards. Oh, seed orchard. So, yeah, so I, I, um, the ones I've been propagating from seed and last few years are all flowering after three years, which is a bit frustrating. So I had mm. this one absolutely amazing one that was just powering mm. for years. It was gigantic, right? So, I mean... Um, but I think we should well, we've got, yeah, yeah, You two flour- need to get together yeah.
1: <laughs> Now I need to mention yeah. that I've had a reminder oh, yeah. uh, I've got to remind people that we are 3CR, we are the Gardening yeah. Program I'm Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants we've got Chris Williams who's uh, one of the lecturers at Burnley and obviously very good on interesting and weird edible crops which uh, people can ring in and talk about uh, and of course Tim Sanson from the Diggers Club and we haven't even talked about your greenery yet but um, hopefully we'll get there, so all three of us are here, perfectly happy to answer your question. So give us a ring uh, if you've got any questions on anything that you can think of horticulturally speaking, on nine four one nine zero one double five, or text us on zero four double eight eight zero nine eight double five. So there we go. Now we have got some calls that are coming in, so we better get to them. Uh, all right. So here we have uh, Bernie. Are you there? Bernie? Hello.
4: Did you say my name, yes, Bernie? Yes, Bernie.
1: Yes, from Lane oh, Warren. Oh, Thanks,
4: Stephen. Yeah. How can and we help the you, The other Bernie. gentleman. Um, few questions, if you've got time. Mm. Uh, one is in. I don't know what that means. Mm. Gnarly, gnarly, and I can I can imagine that's like um, lumpy.
2: Gnarly. Oh, gnarly.
4: Yeah, I, I think you're it's about, well. They that? said like a fruit <laughs> tree. Um, oh. Gnarly. Oh. Uh, uh,
2: um, While
3: well, we're thinking about that, I can talk about coppice. Yeah, yeah go for it. I'll try and... Yeah, uh, yeah I'm no, trying no, to get, get, get my
1: head around. The
4: coppice. I've only got... A, I'm in a unit, so I've only got a very small garden.
1: Mm. Well, coppice... Um, but
4: I do mm. like... And the other one is salvia, to prune.
1: Well, salvia is um, a huge genus, Bernie. We'd need mm. to know which salvia you're working with, uh, whether it's a winter flowering one, whether it's a summer flowering one, whether it's a shrubby one, whether it's a herbaceous perennial one. Um, but most salvias, you can prune them in the spring. Um... But it is better if you know which selvia you're working with because there's literally well, there's hundreds of
4: different... Well, red flowering one and I know Virginia says she cuts them almost down to ground level, which yep. to me takes too long to grow back again.
1: <laughs> well, not if you give them plenty yeah. of water and feeding because selvias generally respond quite quickly and of course it refurbishes the plant makes it soft and, and fresh nicer. again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so... What would
4: you feed them with?
1: Well, anything organic. I mean, blood and bone, compost, mm. animal manure. Um, I mean, salvias, particularly the herbaceous perennial ones, they'll swallow up anything you can throw at them.
4: Yeah, with blood and bone, I know dogs like it, but um, what about rats?
1: Uh, mm. oh, if it's mixed into the top yeah. of the soil, it should be fine. Water, and it, water, water it in. in. Yeah. It shouldn't be a problem uh, to attracting rats, I shouldn't think. Now, but Tim wants to tell you about coppicing.
3: <laughs> well, yes, I was just. thank you. If you if you're, so, what coppicing is, is, is it's usually for um, larger trees or, or not so larger plants that get woody, woody plants, let's say. Uh, coppicing is a technique where you reduce the vigour just by cutting it right back down virtually to the ground mm. and you get a bunch of new growth coming up. So, what's a good example? Something like a smoke bush, a yeah. cottonus? Yeah, you can do it with those.
1: I actually do it in my garden with a um, catelpa. Yep. Uh, okay. I've got a gold leaf catelpa mm-hmm. and I coppice it down every year so that I've got gold leaves in Fresh the border, not, yeah, not, not above way the bo- border. Yeah. And I've seen polonia, the um, uh, empress tree mm-hmm. or puton, uh, coppice down. And that can send up sort of, well in the old measurement, 15 foot stems in the one growing season yeah. with yeah. leaves mm-hmm. that are just enormous. And they yeah. can look
3: really tropical and interesting yeah. grown that way. So it's it's actually a a vigour reduction technique for for large trees to bring their foliage, and it's usually foliage, closer to where you want it to be. Of course, in
1: in places like Britain, they often use coppicing as a technique of refurbishing their forests and yeah. then they take all mm. the coppiced material out and use that for firewood and other sundry things yeah. and so their forests then regenerate mm. themselves by the fact they're being selectively coppiced. And, and willows famously are mm. coppiced, right? Yeah. To, to, for
2: basket weaving, to yeah. create the stems.
1: Which will all give us something to do as we get older. Oh God. <laughs>
2: um, I'm still curious, Bernie, when you say gnarly, is that a, was that a particular type of fruit tree or that one of your trees
3: was well, gnarly? Well, I'm trying to
4: grow one espalier yeah. and um. I did see Tino on garden in Australia, yeah. and uh, he more or less cut every – well, at least I think he did. He cut every um, small growth out and just left um, a few on the branch.
1: He, he probably you know, thinned do, 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 do. out the, the spur wood because um, <coughs> if it's an apple tree or some of those sorts of fruit trees, oh. they actually produce spur wood, which is tight sort Maybe of plus three wood. that's by gnarly. Yeah, the, and that the is gnarly. Description gnarly of oh, the, the yeah, hilarious. and that's the wood that will flower and fruit for you. So sometimes you need to thin that because you end up with too much of it. But you don't want to take all your spur wood out because if you do that, you won't get your fruit tree fruiting. Does that make sense, okay. Bernie? Okay.
4: Um, and also... Um, uh, now, my son found this in a pip and he put it in. It's a seedling which I'm told is very intermittent in fruiting. Would that be correct?
1: Depends on what it's a seedling of, Bernie.
4: A uh, 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 apricot.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, seedling apricots will often fruit fine. Mm. Uh, I've got a seedling nectarine in the garden at home that. Fruits every bit as well as any grafted or budded nectarine wow. that you can get. Yep. Uh, I've got a young blood peach in the garden at home that was seed raised, and that's doing fine. Uh, so there's no reason why some seedling raised fruit trees can't be grown. I mean, I wouldn't bother with an avocado from seed, I have to say, if yeah. I wanted fruit. Too long inconsistent. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, that's,
2: that's what we should have sh- uh, said to uh, Andrew well, we before from, Andrew from Clifton Hill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so, uh, avocados mm. are just a waste of time, I think. But a lot of fruit trees, I had a, uh, seedling Lisbon lemon in the garden at home that it took a long time to start fruiting but mm. once it did it fruited superbly it was a really good tree yep. uh, there, there is a challenge with citrus
3: though on their own roots mm-hmm. because they become susceptible to phytophthora and trit- yeah. tristinia well mine yeah. just
1: blew over yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a storm at one stage but it, it did fruit really well but the great
3: thing about growing a, from a pip like, a, like an apricot or a nectarine is that you can get something that's a bit
1: different you know, yeah. Yeah, well, you it's might. your own thing you could get the, your next own granny, granny yeah, smith yeah, yeah, yeah. that's how the, they all started you could yeah. be the
2: next granny smith yeah,
4: yeah exactly well, need a, um, a cross-pollinator,
1: don't they? Not apricots. Oh, they
4: don't? Oh, okay. No, as far as I know,
1: They're self-fertile. Yeah, they're yeah, self-fertile. They so uh, yeah. I mean, some of the plums do, and apples, apples uh, do. like a cross-pollinator Pears in general. Will. Pears uh, need a cross-pollinator. But most of the stone fruit, I think, will we'll be sell. fine on mm. its own. And often
3: if you're in you know, a suburban
2: area, there's enough pollen somewhere around.
3: Yeah, there'll be neighbours <laughs> with, yeah.
1: with trees that will help. We lot. often don't
2: talk about that, that how rich the... Sub- well... The time being, anyway, before Still they put another apartment, just how rich the suburban, you know, suburban landscape is for tre- is. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm. Mm. All
1: right,
4: All right look, so I hope very, that's very, been much. of some help. Yes, thanks very, very
1: much. No, very, a pleasure, Bernie. Very, very helpful. Good. All Thank right. you. Have a good day. Bye. All right, so there we go, and we better have a chat with Ingrid from Fitzroy. Are you there, Ingrid? Well, I
6: am here. Thank you very much. I'm really nervous. I've never spoken on radio before.
1: Well, there you go. You've
3: got, um, we all 17. need to learn new things. <laughs> all right. We're all nervous, <laughs> oh, too.
6: It, it took me back. I had a, a, a chat on radio with, um, actually, I was in behind with, with on the other side with, um, I think it was, um, who was it? The um, politician who started the Democrats' party. I was 17 years old.
0: Don Chip. Don, uh, Don, 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 Don Chip.
6: Don Chip. It was a wow. long time ago. It was in the 80s. No. Oh. All right, that's made me talk, so I'm a little bit less nervous, but I'm still nervous. Look, I, I live in public high-rise public housing in yeah. Detroit, and I've been here, like, a long time, um, and I am I also have a garden plot in a community garden, which oh, has good. been just an incredible experience for me. It gives me time a ways like, quiet space to basically um, recover from the intensity of inner-city life for me, which is, I have um, recently been diagnosed with autism, so which has given me to understand why that has been so important and so amazing, as well as the community spirit and everything that I've learnt. I'm also a Diggers Club member, and I have been for a number of years, so I want to thank him for that, for everything that the Diggers Club does. Um, It's so wonderful, and also a beautiful space out there to visit at Heronswood and, 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 and... Um, to get the veggies that I've been growing in my garden but most all come from they're all organic and they all come from almost well, with from diggers.
3: Fantastic. right? thanks. Or
6: series, places like that. Well, I have a couple of questions. One is about turmeric because I've been trying to grow turmeric in, well, first time I've been trying to grow it down in the garden. Um, so apart from, that, I think a rat really liked it because it came up and was eaten twice by a rat but I've protected it a little bit. Um, seasonally, Turmeric and ginger. How do you grow them in Melbourne um, successfully? Is there the time of year? If I, like, is that the wrong thing or the right thing? Will it work in it? It would be nice to be able to grow those things.
2: Yeah. Well, with the turmeric and right. sorry, yes. Ingrid. Yes. No, Go on. I was going to say they're they're, they're surprisingly easy to grow in Melbourne. Turmeric and ginger. Yes. Um Yeah. And um, in, in fact, very successful. Really, I, I, I think. One of the things with ginger is to be patient because it I think even just naturally, possi- mm. you know, possibly in the tropics too, it, it's a bit slow to germinate. But it's, it's probably one of the... I mean, I know it's a plant that grows in the understory of rainforest. So that's where it comes yeah. from. And so in my experience growing it, it doesn't really get away until early to mid-December and you think, oh, this is going to be so slow. Sure, it's not going to produce a decent rhizome, but it, it actually does. Mm. So I've grown it in black pots before, you know, thinking that it needs this sort of super full sun and heat, but actually I think that the pots get too hot if it's exposed so I've also grown it um, in, a, in the shade of old cherry plums where the roots yeah. of the cherry plums are really crowding the soil, but the ginger, because it's just this, this fleshy, as long as you water it obviously okay. so I'm, I don't want to sort of say it's too easy, but I've just had a lot of, this year I, yeah. I pulled one out of a pot at my parents and it was huge, the rhizome, so um, yeah. I'm and, and turmeric is even easier. I've produced yeah. gigantic clumps so it's with it's no yeah. like
6: really. i oh, sorry, I cut you off. No, no, that's, that's no fine. Like bad time or year, or, or is it better to grow it in plot or in in a pot? Sorry. Um, then in a I, garden. I pot? think
2: I think get it going in a pot. Yeah, that's that's definitely the principle yeah. I've learnt. So in other words, okay. that letting the sun hit the, the a black pot in. You yeah. know, say mid spring, we'll we'll get it going. Get it going quicker. Yeah, mm. and then you can, you know, safely in let's let's say mid December, early summer, transfer it into the soil. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm. So um, definitely worth a go. Yes. And let's be honest, um, ginger yeah. now is what sixty dollars a kilo retail. Is it really? Oh yeah, yes. it's, it's a it's a and actually. With my international students the, the um, you know mainly those from um, Southeast Asia China, and India, the price of ginger in australia is their they generally love this country, but that 's their nightmare hmm. right yeah. why and that was, they were, they were thinking it was a nightmare when it was twenty five dollars a kilo. Yeah. So it's yes. somewhat
3: yeah. ironic because we've got a pretty big ginger industry. When yeah,
2: there was a rust issue that was affecting yeah, the ginger that. industry. But then what's yeah. also happened um, anecdotally, um, I have a friend who works at, uh, is a wholesale fruiterer and at Epping and he's super into, he looks, he goes to visit growers. He's a really interesting guy. And anyway, he, he's saying actually that the demand for ginger, because people are trying to boost their immune systems because of COVID, and just cooking at home, a bit like mm-hmm. the people wanting to become lawn weekend warriors. <laughs> so it's 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 so it's partly demand as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right. So it's definitely Thank worth you. it then, by the sounds of it, Ingrid.
6: Thank you. Well, hopefully we'll get it happening. I It, it is growing a little turmeric plant. That's my beginning. I have Good. put in some ginger and so, uh, stuff as well. So we'll see when it. Um,
0: well, best of luck with that. And just yeah. think how
1: much you I can make success. out of it if you grow enough. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, All right. Please. Good morning. So one other question, please. Oh.
6: Yeah. Hey, um, yeah um, for Chris, I'm still nervous about this as well because this has obviously been a lot going on. But um, Chris, I there's a quote that you made in the um, Age um, about clearing the garden plot down at the garden. Yep. Um, I've not. You said on one hand we have. This example of a very inclusive space where people actually learn about food production and food has actually grown, which is the market garden of the farm, and on the other, something that has now become kind of very isolated and dysfunctional. Sure. Um, I understand that quotes um, can be taken out of context, because you've probably said a lot of stuff and they've chosen that one quote perhaps, but... um, my garden plot is down there, um, yep. and I'm one of the people that is really has been really devastated by sort of what's happening. Um, and you know, it's not just my turmeric that no, no, wouldn't survive but you know, for myself as well. It's like um, it's been incredibly productive to me and to many other people, and not just in the fresh food that I've been able to grow for myself and other friends that don't have opportunity to have gardens, but also, just as an incredible space that I've been able to go to. that's made such a big difference to my life productivity on so many levels. I work part-time and I'm, I'm, um, I've returned to university to study. Um, I'm doing really randomly, a not so randomly, but a um, master's in IT, which I don't have a background in at all, so it's been really challenging. So, like, being able to go down to my garden pot is, is a massive antidote to that. So, it's... I see so much being grown there and uh, people looking over the fence and saying, wow, this is like so many worlds. And when I started going down there, it was like, well, maybe there's one way to garden and then the right way and the wrong way. And every time I walk through there, I'm reminded that there's, you know, so many different ways because everybody does it differently and it's all legitimate. No, that's something I've had to learn. But, but. Yeah, that's good. no, I'll, yeah. I'll,
2: I'll just say, Ingrid, I, I hear you, and uh, I did say those words, but it was, it was slightly out of context. I was asked by the journalist, you know, what what about the farm's mission, and I, all I tried to say to her, which wasn't put in there, was that the farm is about children and it's about people of disadvantage, and I, I said that is partly some of the people in the community garden, and that they have every right to be, there. and that's the whole point of the community garden. But what I said was that in the last. Three years, as I've been told, the gate on the farm side has been shut and locked because it's been deemed to be too dangerous way before I was involved. You know, just unsafe to have school groups go through, unsafe for, for actual programs that some of the staff run for, you know, people with disabilities. Mm. So what I was trying to say was in the context of the farmer's mission, it's isolated and dysfunctional from the farm point of view. I mean, and I I totally hear you, those words were harsh, the way that they just sort of abruptly ended. So, you know, in that sense, I apologise to you particularly because I think you've been very honest about your situation and I really appreciate that. And when we think about how we design and manage community gardens, I'd imagine that, um, you know, you're the kind of person who really needs to be there and to get all those benefits. So... um, Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: there you
6: go. Part of the value of it, I think, is to have such a wide range of people who are, like, you know, local people in Yarra, as I understand is the, um, you know, the criteria is people that can't, don't have access to their own, you know, place to produce and grow food. Um, it's, Precisely. Um, I've been there for six years, so it's a community garden. It's not for other things and other groups to come in and do that. The I think the site's there to be a community garden, and I think it and it's one of the oldest ones in Melbourne. It's
0: uh, still yeah, the village, yeah. like
6: a village Garden. Sure. And um, I'm really scared that we would, just, you know, lose our plots in the way that they are because like I'm, my plot I inherited from a Greek guy called Con. My actually yeah. in Greek was in Greek studies, so that's really special to me too. You know, it, it's like a created space that been built over 42 years, it's been there as long as... The, I, I hope that we can find any solution yeah. that is to, I think just, just, to just what to, we to, have as a character without sort of taking the plot yeah, away. Yeah, you know,
2: I hear you and I think... Um, not, just, but not
6: changing them into another way. Sure. Space. I
2: will say though that I think there are now community gardens in Melbourne where people like yourself have their plots, get all the benefits and there's more access and sharing from the general public. Uh, that, that's not the farm speaking, though. that's me having looked at these things in depth so I would just... Look forward to talking with you about how we do that because that's what it's going to be. It's going to be a co-design process where everyone has input. So that's that's the exciting creative part coming coming up. Look,
6: that's what I look honestly. I believe that out of any situation, and any even disagreement or every any crisis, that there's a potential. For um, to create something better than there was before without necessarily destroying or changing what there was yeah. before.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
6: I hope that we can all work together and hope that we can make something better and also keep the value of the village garden that has been built there because if that's taken away, it can't be put back. Yeah. But yeah. I hope that we really can work together right. and Ingrid, make something I don't want to, amazing. I don't want to cut thank you thank off, you but we've got about three more time. of callers coming in and, we've, and we're, running we're
1: running out of time. But thank I you.
0: Appreciate your time. Thank you. All right.
1: Thanks, Ingrid. All right, uh, we better keep moving here. Um, oops. Uh, Eleni, are you there from Heidelberg? Yes,
4: yes. yes. Ah.
1: All right, I can't quite see the bottom of the screen, but I think it's something to do with magnolias.
6: That's right, yeah. yes. Uh, I have suckers uh, on the magnolia tree, and I cut them as close to the ground as possible. But I've noticed that every year I get more suckers than mm-hmm. the previous year. Now, uh, my question is: Is there a way I can eradicate this problem M- on
1: a more permanent So the suckers okay. coming up around of the the tree, tree. off the magnolia tree. I can't see how you eradicate the problem because you can't poison ah. the suckers because you'll poison the tree. Um, uh, from my perspective, the only thing you can do is you, you don't want to cut them off at the ground. You want to try and get them out of the root system or out mm-hmm. of the base of the trunk. So you need to sort of. Either get a, a mattock or a sharp spade or an axe or something and actually chop the suckers or push the suckers out of the trunk because leaving stubs behind, they'll just keep reshooting.
6: Wanna damage the roots if hmm? I go that deep?
1: You, you won't damage the roots to any great extent and you won't have any effect on the suckers unless you do it.
3: So, okay. really, the only way to do it is to actually get down to where the, the sucker is emerging. Yeah, from and the try route, and, 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 it out. and try and rip it off that yeah. root rather than mm-hmm. cut it. Otherwise, you leave the stub and you'll get more. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Okay. All right.
1: Lovely. All right. Thank, Thank you, you for calling in. Touch. Oops. Oh, go the right way around. There we go. Uh, all right. We've got a uh, few coming in suddenly. Everybody's got up. That's what the problem is, I think. Um, all right. Is that Norma from Keeler?
5: Yeah, hi.
1: How are you, Norma, Um, and how can we help?
5: Just quick, um, where can I get the red apple tree? I believe it comes from Tasmania. Oh,
3: the one with the red flesh, um, Tim. Yeah, that's right. uh, So that that is actually called Magnus Summer Surprise. It's actually a variety that Bob Magnus, who's an apple legend down in Tasmania, he uh, selected this variety. Um, I know it's available generally through garden centres, but I know that the wholesale supplier for it is JFT nurseries. They do it as bare root trees. So if you you ask specifically a garden centre for Magnus Summer Surprise, that's the red-fleshed apple. Then Do
4: they grow really big, or they're the small? depends
1: tree? on what the understock is
3: that they're grafting on. Yeah, onto. and I think I think JFT are grafting them onto M102 oh. or yes. 26 or one of those. So it's a, but mostly a dwarfing.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it probably won't oh. grow too big. So Magnus, Summer surprise. I'm taking notes here. Yeah, Magnus, yeah. Summer
3: surprise. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So it's a very the interesting. The other
5: one, element. sorry, the other one is uh, Inca berry. What can you tell me about the Inca berry tree or bush?
1: Um, All right, guys, I know nothing yeah, no, about no, no, Inca Berries. I, 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 okay, no, I
2: had—I will admit that I had a student do an assignment on Inca Berries, and I've forgotten it, sorry. No, <laughs> um, let me do a frantic um, Google search. It's, well, it it's had to a, be a quick one. Yeah, Chris, yeah oh, okay, we might, might have to go to someone else, and I'll just All right. say what I find. If you,
1: listen, if you keep listening, Norma, hopefully Chris will come up with an answer for you. Okay.
5: All right, thanks, All right. thanks for much. ringing. Bye.
7: Bye. All right, well...
1: Uh, now, Vic, are you there? No, we've lost Vic, I think. Um, all right. Um, Chloe's rung in about something. Oh, it's
2: just... Sorry, oh. Stephen, just very quickly. Yeah. It, oh, the incaberry incaberry is just a phicillus, uh, as I my pronunciation probably is a... Is a um... Oh, Cape Gooseberry. Yeah, Kate Goodsbury. yeah Cape Gooseberry type. Yeah. Thing. yeah. Wow. How do you say it? Fasalis. 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 So yeah. No, so that, no, I don't
1: think so. No, Fasalis. I think Fasalis sounds nicer. <laughs> um,
2: uh, yeah. There you go. So it's a uh, Cape Gooseberry. It's was that. What was the lady's name? Um, anyway, uh, Norma. Norma. Yes, mm. Norma. It's just norm, normally referred to as a Cape Gooseberry. Very easy to grow. Pretty yummy. They're yeah. a sort of a grammar. suckering perennial, yeah. basically, aren't they? Yes, and they self sow and they recover. Well, there are they're, some
3: there are some annual varieties. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's sort of it's a, kind of like a tomato. Like yeah. it, I it's, would grow it. It's very much like a tomato. It's just with a little lantern over a little tomato. They're,
2: they're quite. They're actually it, wherever you get heavy summer rain. So once you get beyond say Dubbo in New South Wales, which I know well, um, they, they pop up as a weed. Yeah, good good foraging, mm. but easy to grow in Melbourne.
1: Yeah, small children in Madagascar try and sell you baskets of them, as oh, you're you are driving on the side of the road, yeah. and they call them pukpuk's. Right, oh, wow. <laughs> so there's a bit of. So you would have effort. known if, if someone yeah. had asked you for that one. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. We've got about five minutes to go. So, Tim, would you like to talk well, about one of your okay. plants? So.
3: I'm actually just going to leave a teaser then. Oh, I'll come right. back next time sh- with my selection. Yeah. Um, what I would brought in today, which I can talk about next time, is is, is a couple of Australian native trees. We, mm-hmm. we started off today talking about trees getting blown over yeah. and the, the importance of trees in our landscape. Um, over the last, oh, this is 20-odd years at Diggers, we've been doing quite a bit of work on tree selection. All oh, right. And uh, Clive, our founder, has, a, has a quite a reputation for being quite anti-eucalypt, mm-hmm. um, which... Um, you know, we don't have to necessarily be, the, be that dogmatic, but the, what, it's, what, it's, what it's, I guess we've gleaned from that is what are the alternative Australian native trees which are great for urban gardens. Yep. And what we've looked at is uh, some of the, the native rainforest trees that occur in northern New South Wales and into southern ah, Queensland right. mm-hmm. um, and how these can be used in, in treescapes. So one of the trees I brought in today was a tulip wood, which is the Harpulia, mm-hmm. uh, the Harpulia pilia. i can't get this the, the species name. Um, but it's, um, it's an Australian native tree that's used in, um, in, in landscapes across Sydney. Mm-hmm. You'll see it in um, areas like St Ives as a street tree. Um, so it's, it's, we're kind of picking up trees that are not going to require a hell of a lot of attention. So they'll take drought, they'll take, um, they'll take some heat. Mm-hmm. But they've got a nice evergreen foliage, uh, and you get beautiful deep shade. Uh, so sorts of trees that are not going to be too big. So I'm, I guess I'm leaving a bit of a teaser for next time when mm-hmm. I'll go into a bit more of some of the other selections that we've got. Um, because we've, we've been looking back at what, what Waite Arboretum and what, uh, other, um, uh, sort of advanced tree growers are looking at and picking the eyes out of that for what are the best trees for the Australian landscape.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Oh, well, that should be quite good. I like uh, the idea of a teaser.
3: Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I think I, that's
1: perfectly fine. Um, <laughs> that's right. All right, well, we're starting to – I think we're going to start to wind down shortly because it's getting on towards quarter past, so we will be uh, finishing up shortly. So any final words from you, Chris, that you'd just like to mention in passing? Um,
2: oh, no, I, I guess other than what's happening at the children's farm – Eventually it's going to end yeah. up, people are going to see a space and the plotters are going to be back and there's yeah. going to be extraordinary stuff there. I'm super optimistic.
1: Good. All right. And Tim, you're obviously from the Diggers Club, so have we got something that people should be looking at well, for I, the latest catalogue So
3: We're right in the throes right now of finishing our annual, our seed annual. Ah, right. So this is every year we produce our heirloom seed annual. And there's some exciting projects that we're kicking off this year. We're actually um, we're featuring in the magazine and the annual this year. A, a new seed garden project that we're running at Heronswood, which will all be about the, the um, seed saving technologies, mm-hmm. no. how, pe- how people can, can engage in seed saving, exclusion of varieties, oh, you know, and how we can, the techniques of seed saving.
2: That's the thing. I've got a student doing a research project on that at the moment at the community level. I'd love her to talk to you about that. Great, right. wow,
1: down. wow. Oh, yeah. Alright,
4: we've got to
2: go folks,
1: so goodbye all. Uh, thank you for joining us and we're running late, so uh, we'll catch up with you next week and don't forget the radiothon.